Hello and welcome to episode 228 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 27th of February 2018. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. Good evening, gentlemen. It's nice to be back on the pod. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. You know what I really like is the way the voices in... <laughs> moving quickly onto Subnautica. The <laughs> uh, vehicles in Subnautica welcome you with robot voices and mm. different robot voices and they all get it slightly wrong. They all sound... They're like the intonation. They say... Uh, welcome aboard, Captain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the stress is on Captain. the wrong word. It's it's a little bit clipped. Good evening, it's... gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, they're all the spy from yeah. <laughs> Twist Ending to Subnautic. Sorry, spoilers. Um, yeah, I guess it's been a while since Tom Senior and I have done this. It does feel a while, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. It's been it does the, feel a while, hasn't it? Not in the, the grammar. Tom F. Alex and Pip show for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which will return because it's been, it's proved very popular. <laughs> we weirdly, um, uh, often, uh, ones with Alex on have been the ones where I'm the most drunk. Mm. Um, and Alex is usually not drinking at all, <laughs> which should be awful for Alex. And you'd expect him to be like, um, just sitting there wishing it was over. But often he's also one of the loudest people on those podcasts. That's because I think, you know, I, I I think maybe that's Alex's passive or something. Like he kind of benefits from the ambient drunkenness of everybody else. Or he's just a <laughs> yeah. profoundly silly man. He's like, um, uh, who's the main character in Heroes? Who like he could empathically, oh, he- empathically oh, get um, the powers from other heroes Peter. Near, nearby. Is it Peter yeah. Petrelli? Yeah. Is that guy's yeah, name? Right. Why do I remember that? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the bad one was Sila, who who could he stole powers, didn't he? So he, he got he the ate, power. He ate a small piece of from, someone's brain. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Peter could like share them in a nice sherry way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's Alex. He can share drunkenness in a nice sherry <laughs> way. Yeah. There must be a dark Alex out there who can just steal drunkenness through your brain and it kills you. I enjoyed uh, Silo's uh, evil arc and his origin story, which was my dad was bad and a clockmaker and now I eat brains. And there's almost no <laughs> connection between those two. So there outputs. you have it. Uh, yeah, I watched all of Heroes, um, I think, for a long time after it started and... I know that doesn't make any sense, but I said it. And uh, there's definitely a... That show is definitely what happens when people who half remember different bits of different quite famous 1980s gritty comic books kind of string them together. So it's like, my dad was a watchmaker, a bit like in, in Watchmen. Um, but I ate the brains now. Um, we've introduced a time-traveling man who can fix almost anything at any time. Oops. But he's not going <laughs> to... <laughs> Yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah. It, that show just became like, early on, there was a couple of times where you think like, why don't they just use the power that they're known for? Like the one thing that they, they're known for. And then as it went on, that was just like every moment of every, why didn't they use his power? Why didn't he use his power? Why didn't she use her power? Why didn't this person, like, all of these problems are solvable by the very powers that the, makes these people remarkable in the first place. You say that the, the meta of that show was so flawed. Like they need like a video game designer to go in there and sort of balance the powers out. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, so the plot could survive into the second season. That's an amazing amazing attempt to wrangle this back i was desperately trying Chris. <laughs> Try so i mean hard. We, we, look we're going to break it to people that this is becoming a uh mid noughties um bad <laughs> sci-fi show uh critique uh podcast but you know we have to find some way to jettison all of our patreon backers and that's, <laughs> that's the approach we chose to take so what about that ending of lost huh oh boy <laughs> don't get me started really don't get me started um so talking about anything else uh, talking about computer games news, mm-hmm. uh, there was, uh, so we're going to, we're going to zoom in on two stories, one of which is simply the release of a game that everyone likes. Um, but the first one was <laughs> not the that. release of a game by accident, apparently, <laughs> so this that is, nobody likes. 
Hunt Down the Freeman, which is a game, it's a Half-Life <laughs> game that is released on Steam, so therefore presumably with Al's approval. Um, but they, they seem quite lax about that. They don't seem to be, I wouldn't take that as like Valve's saying, yeah, this is great. <laughs> um, uh, and the first I heard of it was I was watching a video the other day from Half-Life News Network. Um, and in the related vids, it just was the thumbnail for the video was just like, remember everyone, don't buy <laughs> Hunt the Freeman. Um, <laughs> and that's, I'd never heard of it before then. And then I heard that it came out and, uh, that it had a bad critical reception and that the developers, uh, did a post sort of apologizing for the launch. <laughs> Uh, but also saying they were, they were pushed into it because they were being harassed. Um, I'm not sure why or, or by whom. Um, and then also in the same post, they claim that they, the version they released is not the version they meant to release <laughs> and that they're working on a massive update. But those two things don't quite jive. Like it is having been, having released games from on Steam. Um, I can see how you could accidentally deploy the wrong version. Like you should be checking obviously before mm. you make it live for everybody, but, uh, you can like, you compile your game to like an executable, um, and stuff. And then you use Steam's deploy tool and your content has to be in a certain folder. And before you put the new version there, the old version is there. So if you ran it with forgetting to put the new version in, you'd deploy the old version. But that wouldn't explain why it's going to take time to to, to make a patch. Like, we've got to work on this patch to, to update it to the version that we should have launched. Why don't you have the version you should have launched? If you're saying, like, you, the version you thought you launched is not the one you launched, where is the version you thought you launched? Do you not have it at all? Like, Well, the thing is, Tom, right? So I had the version that was finished, but then my printer was broken. So I had to put that on a USB stick, but then accidentally emailed the old version of the file. <laughs> Um, and then unfortunately my, the USB stick was in the other bag and I don't have that one with me. My so, sister took it. Yeah. She's she, it's in her bag France. and yeah. And, um, she goes to a different school <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> and anyway, so I could probably get it tomorrow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange explanation and a strange excuse. I'm sorry. It was, yeah. I'm sorry. You don't like this. We don't either. And we <laughs> accidentally released it. And anyway, we have a good version, but yeah. we can't give it to you yet. <laughs> um, the, the concept sounds cool. It's a, it's like a first person Half-Life type game, but you are the bad guys from Half-Life trying to kill Gordon Freeman. And I guess most of it involves probably fighting aliens instead. Cause right. just one Gordon Freeman would not <laughs> make for much of a campaign. It'd be very funny. Pretty <laughs> much hitting everything with crowbars, just invincible. Why is he so good with a fucking crowbar? <laughs> Yeah, I'm just doing lunge jumps and fleeing. <laughs> Bunny hopping. <laughs> yeah. Flying backwards over walls. Actually, that sounds infuriating. <laughs> like, effortlessly shooting you in the head every time he turns a corner. <laughs> That's, yeah. Well, um, it's not really news so much. It's just, it's funny it's that that happened. It's news that anyone would would make that their excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh Yes. Uh, the other, the game that's come out that everyone likes is Into the Breach, which <laughs> yeah. is out today, and they did not release the wrong version, or if they did, it's very <laughs> yes. good. Holy crap. Yeah. They could have released the version I was playing last year, and it would have been fine. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so I appreciate that we've, we've talked about Into the Breach a bunch, um, although I've finally now played it, uh, but we should probably explain what it is for the benefit of people who, for some reason, don't know. Yep. It's a turn-based um, tactical game where you play as three mechs fighting kaiju, giant alien insects, uh, on a very small battlefield, eight by eight squares. Um, 
and your objective is to stop the Vec from uh, destroying the city, like buildings mm. that are around. Um, and uh, you do that by uh, doing enough damage to kill them. Just, just shoving wasps. But, that's, uh, how you, that's how you do it. Also, a lot of your attacks have like uh, <laughs> can push them. So you're trying to like push them so that instead of attacking the building, they're actually going to attack their own friends or yeah. they're going to fall in the sea. Once, <laughs> once they're committed to doing a thing, they can't not do that thing. Mm. That's yeah, that's the- that's the clever thing is that um, before they actually do any attacks, you are warned exactly where they're going to attack and then mm. you can you have your, your whole turn to do something about it, including pushing them around and that can lead to hilarious consequences. <laughs> but those consequences are quite fair feeling. Although um, it's interesting because... I've definitely had a very sort of stop-start learning curve with it so far. I've been through one life in that I've played, but like played through to the point where you lose and you travel back in time and you start over with one of your pilots. And then I played like the, a, a whole island into my second run, which I appreciate is super early days. But like a lot of my first run was like doing things I didn't realize at the time were mistakes <laughs> and sort of, and I think obviously the format, the kind of, uh, you know, you fail, you take your best pilot back to the past you try again structure of the game means that it doesn't feel bad it's not like xcom where you're starting the you know you feel like you're starting from scratch and, and watching cutscenes again because you just didn't understand something fundamental yeah. about how the game works but i definitely have been mostly learning by making unexpected <laughs> errors like oh i didn't realize that this knockback would kill me or i didn't realize i can't shoot in this way or, or that kind right, of right yeah yeah it's um uh it tries to show you what will happen when you do uh, a certain action before you do it. Um, but the information it's trying to convey is so complex. <laughs> there are so many, there are so many potential consequences for doing something that it's, um, even with all their visualizations of this guy's going to get knocked back. He's going to deal one damage to this and also one damage to himself. And that's going to mean this happens. Um, it's such a difficult thing to convey that even with all their very good interface, uh, for doing that, uh, it's sometimes imperfect. Sometimes, uh, uh, I just had things like, I don't know, I, I set fire to the train. <laughs> <laughs> That's an Adele and, song, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it should be. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, and the reason was, um, I did it experimentally. <laughs> it was an experiment. I honestly, yeah, sir. yeah um, lethal experiments on your own things are definitely because mm. there are rules like you can set fire to the ground beneath a building, mm. and that doesn't hurt the building in any way. It's absolutely fine. Uh, and the train, admittedly, is not a building, but I didn't know exactly how it counted. Like, is it uh, is it a mech like us? Is it um, treated like a building? Is it treated like this? And my way of telling was like, well, I'll, uh, I have a reset. You only get one reset per battle, which means you can just take Oh, back. shit, you have a reset. <laughs> that would have definitely saved one life. So you can only use it once per battle, but um, as long as you haven't committed your turn yet, you can undo all the things you've done on that turn. Um, and I tested by setting fire to the tile, and my experience has been if you set fire to the tile beneath a VEC, you see flame on the VEC itself, mm. uh, and that tells you the VEC is burning. If you set fire to the flame, to the ground underneath the building, the building doesn't have any flame effect on it, just the ground does, and that means it's not burning. So I set fire to the ground beneath the train, there was no flame effect on the train itself, so I thought, okay, fine, I can commit this turn, because the damage doesn't happen until after mm. you commit the turn. Then I committed the turn, then the train <laughs> took one damage, which destroys the train. Um, and that was the end of uh, that objective. I've also, on my latest run, I've had a completely fair fuck-up, but one where, like, 
my mistake was so small and the consequences were so huge <laughs> that I still feel sore about it. Like it's not, it is my fault. I knew all the rules. Well, I, I knew, I knew most of the rules and the rule I didn't know. I would have been able to guess if he'd asked me, Hey, do you think this would happen? I would say, Oh yeah, shit. It probably does. And it's, um, uh, the game has loads of optional objectives and, uh, two, one every mission. And this one is a special scenario where there is a disposal unit on the map and it can fire like a big blob of acid that destroys everything on four tiles. And you can do that every turn. Um, and your sub-objective is to destroy all the mountains on the map. And the mountains are clustered such that I could do that in two shots. Like this shot will destroy mm. that set of mountains, this shot will destroy that set of mountains. The battle is four or five turns long. Um, so I have two to three whole turns that I can use this just to kill enemies with, which is great. And uh, the first turn, huge number of enemies, like six enemies, all clustered, all really, really high health enemies, clustered in this one little place. I thought, fuck it, this is the prime time to kill enemies with this. I'm not going to get a chance like this again. Killed enemies with it. Um, knowing I would have all these spare turns to kill the mountains later, destroy the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> um, and only two enemies left. And those two enemies, I just mop them up by like having my rocket guy fire at them and then, um, so the unit hit them. And my rocket guy happened to be standing right in front of the, uh, disposal unit when he fired and killed the enemy. Everything was fine. Committed my turn. Only after that did I remember that the, uh, rocket guy emits smoke behind him when he fires. And he was standing right in front of the, the disposal unit. And disposal unit, turns out, like any mech or any other unit, can't attack when it's in smoke. Oh, no. Unlike any other mech or any other attack unit, it can't move. So it can't <laughs> leave the smoke ever. So it can just <laughs> never fire again. <laughs> and so it just couldn't use it to destroy any of the mountains. And it failed that objective. It was surreal, too, because it did, it did such a good job of killing the enemies. And also, I killed the rest of the enemies. That for the rest of the battle was just empty. Like, the, a couple would spawn, <laughs> but wow. every time it's pitifully easy this to is destroy fine. them but i just can't do the objective there's no way how are you finding it tom uh i'm pretty similar to you chris that i've not i've only done a few resets um in my early plays with it i i've had the same thing where you sort of the game does tell you everything <laughs> but if you to actually absorb that information just takes some trial and error yeah, just doing yeah it over i think over again i think we talked about in the podcast before that like tooltips are probably the worst way to ever impart information in the game <laughs> like i almost refuse to look at them <laughs> and so like you can hold like left control to get information on any enemy type which is very useful you hold left alt to see what things are likely to happen the game showed me both of these features and it's not even a particularly ui heavy game but my brain and eyes just rebelled immediately like, <laughs> oh, i'm reading this <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely a game about applied knowledge isn't it is it when you actually see your uh units dealing with a specific type of damage that's when you realize what you can kind of do in combination and, and it took me ages to like again it's my own fault i always feel like it's my own fault with that <laughs> into the breach because there's no excuse <laughs> there's just no as a player there's no excuse for not knowing what why a thing has happened really um you should have just paid t- attention to a certain tooltip or a certain effect or something um but just learning that the the dudes with a tail they do uh, damage one or two squares away. Uh, the dudes who don't have a tail, they do direct line damage that will go across the entire map unless you block it or ship mm. them off course. That just takes learning. Um, because like, I, I find that a lot of the unit design visually doesn't really reflect what they do terribly well. Yeah. Um, mm. so that, that just takes some rote learning. I and think. also a lot of them I would classify as beetle. <laughs> there are like <laughs> yeah, three different so, things I would call a beetle. There is an enemy called a beetle, but like <laughs> yeah. fundamentally. But there's there's also one called the scarab, which to me looks more like what I would typically think of as a beetle. <laughs> and then there's one that is called a firefly, but I would also think of as a beetle. Yeah. So for example, I, I would expect the thing with a tail that looks like it might shoot stuff 
to be the thing that shoots bolts across the map and the thing which doesn't have a tail that has claws would be the thing that does close combat damage but mm. there's a little bit of just what i assume based on the visual uh mm. to the units isn't quite accurate uh you also but- have to learn things like the scorpions web things uh, so every time they attack anything they web it as well mm-hmm. so if they're attacking a building doesn't make any difference but if they're attacking you it means you kind of have to deal with it or uh, yeah. you can't use that mech um and so once you know that uh when you're looking at like the first set of enemies you might want to prioritize those guys and destroy them first yeah stuff like that um also um i've done like three or four kind of restarts and um it's starting to actually get close to beating an island which is kind of i like really like the way the game is chunked in terms of these little mm. islands that and once you kind of beat an island it seems like you can cash in all the stars you've earned to actually kind of start upgrading your yep. squad mm. but i find that it's um in that little run-up to that point it's very hard to get on the upgrade track at all so yeah. it's really hard to get experience on your units to actually get like extra health or extra damage on your guys um so the, it feels like a bit of a sprint so far mm. the, the first bit um and i the, it's there's loads of stuff I'm enjoying about the game, but the, these are the problems I've run into just immediately with it. Is that I'd like a, just a, one upgrade on a unit pretty much guaranteed after a couple of fights. Yeah, it's interesting. They intentionally, um, don't do that. So I think on the first island, um, I think it's possible to get a time pod, which, which contains a reactor core that you can use to upgrade yourself. Hmm. But on the later islands, there are sectors which, uh, by doing this mission, you earn a time, uh, sorry, you earn a reactor core just as part of the reward mm. and that never happens on the first island yeah um which uh is intentional um i think because they don't want maybe don't want to overwhelm you with choices or something if you're a new player but for me i always want uh the options to come as soon as possible in a roguelike like mm. when i start my run yeah as soon as possible i want something to happen that hasn't happened before and having upgrades is just one way of doing that you know i can put a point here that i'd never i've never tried this upgrade before yeah yeah but especially they, if you're yeah. They hold off on that on the first island. So the first island is pretty similar with the same squad. But I, I can imagine that's the bit that most players are going to repeat the most before they give up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, it's like, not a decision I entirely agree with. Um, so that, that's pretty much the only friction I've had with it so far though. Like, uh, I think it's astonishing how much dynamism, dynamism they managed to put into this small grid. Mm, so, um, yeah. I, I wasn't prepared for, the way maps would change so there are maps where tides come in and start to slowly eliminate the map yeah and it gets smaller and smaller and that changes how effective your units are and how effective the enemy is as well like it pushes them into dangerous situations mm. um there's a mission i love where you smash a dam and it just yes. sends a river going right through the middle of the map and that is just a, it's such a joy to see that happen just like destroy yeah. a load of enemies and it really mm. messes up the vex plans because been, most of them can't go across the water i've been watching let's players uh play it like youtubers and stuff and uh which is great because i've you know been playing this game uh myself for ages but i have no idea how anyone else plays it and then i thought brilliant i get to watch other people play it and see how they how they do it and then i've watched that damn mission so many times i'm like shoot the fucking like all these problems you're trying to solve will go away if you break the dam (laughs) all these things will drown (laughs) shoot the dam i did exactly the same thing though like uh, uh, i could again the game gives you all the information it said the the game says look shoot the fucking dam that's (laughs) that's why you're here that's the whole thing i'm like i don't want to break a dam that people die when dams break they're just like a i want to destroy that infrastructure like instinctively i feel like oh that's like a thing that should be protected normally in games i'm protecting (laughs) dams and you're protecting all these human buildings so suddenly you're being asked to destroy a human building and it's like oh well that's not going to help but the first time you do it it's like okay the next time i'm sending my big punchy guy (laughs) i'm just getting it down straight away big river across the map and the rest of the mission is a pleasure they have a few objectives that are just really counterintuitive so one is um uh it says terraform uh terraform the uh desert with the the uh 
or, no, I can't remember how they phrase it, but like terraform all the land or something. And you start with a terraform in the middle and a few bits of like green grass and, and some barren desert. Hmm. And so, uh, this is a version, a early version. This isn't true in the final thing, but, um, uh, I played that and I tried to turn the, I fired the terraformer at the desert to try and turn it into grass and that does nothing. Uh, you have to fire it at the grass to turn it into desert. <laughs> like your yeah. objective is to make oh, it desert. Right. Yeah. Fuck the grass. And they've, uh, they've since updated that tooltip so it says like terraform the grassland back to desert just okay. to be specific about it but it's right. a counterintuitive objective like mm. <laughs> what's wrong with the grass can't we have the grass <laughs> yeah I think the the economy of it the way you buy upgrades and things really reminds me of FTL like more than anything yeah. else that's the thing that really reminds me the most of FTL not just because the shop looks the same <laughs> and the currency <laughs> look the same yeah um, but because I my most recent run I was pretty good about you you have the grid and the grid is your health bar basically um for the world <laughs> and some missions you pick which missions you're going to do and i you always start with like a couple of blocks of damage to the grid which i like actually is a little touch because it means mm. that repairing the grid is like a direction you can choose to go at the start yeah. versus yeah. other kinds of um other kinds of objectives rather than your health bar simply being something that will always go down mm. like until you have to start fixing it and actually even when it's full if you then earn grid points they increase your grid resistance rate yeah so you can make your grid kind of more resistant to future damage like a a better chance to resist which is cool that that works for me and i spent basically the first island um always going for the grid up things and and getting the grid basically maxed and then on the final mission uh of the island fighting the boss i just did something dumb like it was a total like it was you know early days of the game just experimenting but i just went all in on killing the boss as fast Mm. as possible which meant kind of ignoring some of the other monsters and also like if i if i if to kill the boss i have to punch him into a skyscraper well <laughs> like and and in doing that i won the mission but i managed to get the grid down to one health oh my God. like on that mission <laughs> and so all of the currency it's like corporation points basically yeah you get reputation reputation points from that entire island when you get the shop at the end of the island i dumped into repairing the grid Mm -hmm. and repairing the grid is the cheapest thing it costs one reputation and that it reminds me so much of repairing the ship in ftl where like you know how you'd have that thing in ftl where it was never enough to get to the to get to a shop with loads of resources you had to get to the shop with loads of resources and a ship that badly didn't need <laughs> fuel or repairs yeah. Yeah. because otherwise you couldn't really justify buying the new laser or whatever you wanted right mm. that that really that rhythm feels a lot like ftl to me just the the fact that your your resources can kind of buy you out of a bad series of decisions but doing so means again you're not getting access to the toys because the shop has like cool upgrades for your mechs and you can yeah. buy uh, reactor cores which allows like to unlock the specific mech upgrades and things um there's a funny little consequence of that shop system where you earn reputation on an island you can only spend it at the end of the island and any unspent reputation is just lost when you leave the island because it's only rep with that faction and when mm. you go to another island you're working for a different faction and that rep doesn't count and so if you have any rep left over uh and you don't need the grid strength um uh you should just buy something you don't want <laughs> because next island you can sell it for rep <laughs> and so right. you get that money back right and sort uh, of uh i guess you could also keep putting points in the grid couldn't you uh yeah you could just overcharge it yeah yeah um i i almost never pay to repair the grid i will always go for even if i'm really close to maybe if i had one health i might put a couple of points into the grid yeah. but um i would usually go for tools and just and then on the next island 
choose the missions that reward good strength and just kind of mm. hope i don't fuck up too badly <laughs> because sometimes like the thing you buy for your rep is the tool that allows you to avoid any good damage on the next thing like you know because you have that you don't have to take that hit and therefore when you rewarded with one even one grid power it's a net win and you can kind of work your way back up to health there's nothing more annoying than realizing on the final turn of a game that's of a of a of a mission that's going to earn you one grid point realizing there's nothing you can do to stop <laughs> yeah. a fucking wasp <laughs> hitting totally. a building yeah. and like oh it's a net even <laughs> yeah uh, I, th- I think the the idea of the power grid is basically the health bar for your campaign is absolutely spectacularly good. <laughs> it's yeah. so clever because uh, the lower it gets, the more the the more energy you devote to diverting monsters away from buildings. So it changes the way you actually approach scenarios as well. And and you start thinking about whether you want to sacrifice sub objectives just to protect buildings, mm. that kind of thing. And th- it's really clever and it's really clear once you've played through a couple of rounds you know what's at stake with the grid and with objectives you know it's funny i think it's actually started to not work for me because i've played this enough that i know um if i get every single sub objective then as well as having all the rep for doing that i also get a free gift like right uh, Right. at the very end of the island they just come to you and say hey do you want this cool pilot do you want this cool weapon or do you want some free grid repair because you got every objective and so getting every objective is the only thing I care about. <laughs> I will take right. 10 grid damage. Mm, well, I can't uh, take 10, but yeah. I'll take like five grid damage to, to get one star. Uh, if it's, if I haven't lost a star yet, because, uh, uh, you know, what one weapon or something is not actually that massively valuable, but losing it feels so bad to me. I'm just, as soon as I lose one objective, I'm just like, Oh, fuck this whole thing. Um, and because it's a health bar, it's funny. I think if they, uh, I agree it is a good system, but, um, if, that wasn't your health bar if something else was and they just said please save as many systems as possible i might care about it more <laughs> because mm-hmm. once you tell me it's a health bar i know oh that can go down to one and i'll be fine like, that's, <laughs> that's all i have to worry about as long as it doesn't go to zero it's fine so i just let people die mm. <laughs> and uh because the stars give me a mechanical reward i get like new toys that's my absolute mm. number one priority yeah it feels like if they if you have the grid above a certain level and you got a toy then perhaps that would yeah that would yeah work. i think that'd be cool actually if you get to the end of yeah, the yeah either all the objectives or the grid hasn't taken yeah, any damage yeah. would be interesting like that's actually kind of interesting to hear because one thing i really like about the objective system is yeah you have the sub objectives but i did, well, until you just said that i didn't know there was a specific reason to always want to get all of them yeah, mm-hmm. one thing i like about it is you know from the ui that this sub objective will get you a reputation point this sub objective will get you a grid yeah. point this sub objective will get you a reactor core and so when you have i like the moments where you kind of have to choose between the health of your mechs the survival of your pilots the grid and the objectives and because you know i guess you can meticulously plan every step of every game but that's not really how i've been playing it i like the moment where you're like well i can't protect the train or whatever that's going to lose me a reputation point but i can uh get all of the kills on this map which will get me a grid point which i want more yeah and like that i like as a way of structuring sub objectives i quite like that like mm. the kind of notion that you pick your reward as you you sacrifice one or the other yeah, yeah i've totally had situations like that where i've i've used my artillery guy to actually nuke one of my own buildings because it would push <laughs> enemies away from the objective <laughs> i wanted to pre- preserve i say like, awesome. so i was like okay i'm going to take that grid hit to protect this tank because I mm. actually want the star rather than, or I want, I want the, um, uh, so there are like pods that fall onto the map and you want to claim them mm. and stop them. Yeah. Don't shell them. That's don't shell thing. them. <laughs> um, shell the citizens instead. And there uh, is actually an achievement for just destroying every time pod you see. <laughs> every time you get a time pod, you're just like, no, fuck it. I will kill it. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. It, it, Don't eat time pods. I'm loving it. <laughs> it's really spectacular. I, I've only got the first team of three, of course, but just seeing the menu where there are so many different teams. Yeah, there are stuff, eight like, squads of whoa. three unique mechs. <laughs> there are um, all these different possibilities. They are... Um, my favorite one is the Frozen guys. Um, I can't remember what they're called. Elsa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Elsa. Olaf. <laughs> Olaf. That's what I thought when I nuked that building. Just let it go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they, they're named for their science mech that can uh, freeze one enemy, but in doing so, freezes himself. <laughs> no and when something is frozen, it can't move or act. Uh, the next bit of damage it takes, it won't take any actual damage. It'll just break the ice. Okay. Uh, so you are just stuck until something hits you and the enemies will still attack you. So you can hope that they will do that. But otherwise you've got to like use one of your other mechs to like knock you out of the ice. Um, so it's a huge drawback, but freezing an enemy has all these interesting benefits. Like one, it takes it out of the fight. Obviously it can't do anything, but then two other enemies will start to attack it in order to try and free it. So they, you not only save yourself the attack that that enemy would have done you save yourself the attack of the enemy who tries to free it because there's two enemies now oh, who would have been attacking if, if you hadn't frozen that one and then uh, added to that you could also like free the thing from the ice on the same turn that another enemy is also trying to do that so that you break the ice and then the they enemy just it. attacks it <laughs> uh, and you could freeze something on top of a spawn point so that then um oh yeah That's it can't move out the way and it blocks the spawn blocking the spawn will break the ice but then it's um uh that's cool and then if there's a flying enemy um usually you know you can't like drown those in water or have them fall off the map no. but if you freeze them <laughs> they're not flying anymore Beautiful. and then Red. the cool thing about the frozen squad is that like most squads have like a sort of signature unit like a really special one and then the others kind of support it in some mm. kind of interesting way uh the frozen team all of them are mad <laughs> the one who freezes himself as well as freezing the enemy then their prime mech just flips people he just hits them with a shield and that now they shoot in the opposite direction so it's all about <laughs> turning people around and then their tank shoots in both directions so it's yeah. behind him and ahead can you choose not to do that no you <laughs> <laughs> must fire behind you as well that's excellent it's like that's excellent yeah the worst last line of defense <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why do we why do we make this tank get behind get slightly to the side of me <laughs> Yeah, particularly when teamed up with a shield guy. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's great. I'm really looking forward mm. to playing a little bit more of it. Um, as it only came out today at the time we're recording, so I've only had an hour with it so far. Uh, do you know if they're planning to do an iPad version? Don't know. They did with FTL, probably. so. Yeah, it's yeah I, be surprised. I had that feeling immediately. Like, it's great on PC and it yeah, runs nicely yeah. at a window and it's kind of a nice sort of just have this open and take a few turns and do yeah. a mission kind of game by which I mean play it all afternoon <laughs> at the expense of everything else um, but this is actually this is the game I played while compiling Heat Signature while I was out in Seattle um, right. you know I would be working on Heat Signature then as soon as it needed to compile it would only really take like one minute or two minutes to compile and so I just quickly switched on my laptop where into the beach running I'll just do one turn <laughs> and that'll take like one or two minutes and then like half an hour later <laughs> shit I gotta make my game <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Really, um, I mean, I was, I knew I was going to like it, so it feels a bit like sort of, it's almost not surprised me by yeah. just the fact that it came along and it's like, oh yeah, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless. Tom, I believe you have also been moving people around in squares and grids. I have. Yeah. I think uh, talk about in, Into the Breach, it, we've talked about XCOM as well previously in relation to it. We're kind of always talking about XCOM. Oh, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of good. Um, I really like XCOM. But it, like XCOM and this are just sort of 
two sides of the same design idea. You've got a grid, you move everything around, and then they get angle, shooting angles on things. They've got some objectives to complete. But it's just the philosophies behind the two are just so different that it creates such a diff- different experience. Um, XCOM is about dice rolls. It's about, you know, uh, man- you know managing chance mm. across the map and then finding a way to absorb unfair losses or losses that feel, you know, like they're going to screw you over, finding ways of raise around that, ways to cope with it, both emotionally and also in terms <laughs> of the, your resources and stuff. Um, and in that vein, I've played Phoenix Point, Hmm. Which is, uh, Julian Gollop's take on XCOM, current modern take on XCOM. Julian hmm. Gollop, of course, created the original yeah. XCOM. His was the original take on XCOM. Yeah. XCOM. Yeah. <laughs> the very first one. Uh, and it's been weird writing about this game because I feel like I inevitably have to compare it to Fire Axis XCOM. Hmm. Because that's what most audiences are going to know XCOM to be. Uh, obviously not hard copies gamers have been, you know, playing for many years and did play the original. Um, but, uh, Jake Solomon and, uh, Fire Axis is, uh, for me, extraordinary reboots of that idea has become the sort of de facto XCOM idea. It's what people mm. kind of think XCOM is. And so Phoenix, it's interesting to play Phoenix Point where they've borrowed so much from XCOMs, uh, from Fire Axis XCOM and also changed it in subtle ways that make it feel very different. So I played a combat demo and the classes are very familiar. You've got like sniper guy, you've got heavy gunner guy, you've got a couple of assault guys, but the dice rolls are very, very different. So in XCOM, when you're taking a shot, it gives you a percentage to hit value. And most of the time you either hit or miss. And the, you can graze, you can sort of hit armor and stuff. For the most part, it's pretty much all or nothing. It's a very much an all or nothing game when it comes to your decisions. You make, you take a gamble and either it works or it doesn't. Mm. And you're either fucked or you're not. And you have to work around it. And whereas Phoenix Point is actually really different. It models uh, individual bullets and their chances of hitting. When it gives you, when it presents you with an enemy, it'll tell you the percentage chance to hit, which is generally, um, based on this demo, much, much, much higher than XCOM. <laughs> so it's probably going to hit your percentage chance of, um, then there's a percentage chance of you just killing them if you, the weapon does a certain amount of damage, but you can also target individual limbs on an enemy. Oh my God. And it gives you another series of percentage chances to disable certain limbs huh. if you want to take out bits of enemies. Hmm. Um, and enemy specialties are obviously, you know, as it makes sense, tied to the limbs that they have. So, uh, the enemies are kind of weird crab monsters that have come out of the ocean and uh, they'll have gun arms or shield arms or claw arms. And if you want to <laughs> blow those off, which you possibly can, um, if you shoot off like a, a, a gun-armed crab, it's just a fucking crab. You just don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, uh, again, the, the cover system is very similar to XCOM. It's like heavy cover, light cover. The UI is really, really similar because the UI just works in XCOM in terms mm. of, um, of the yellow outline is... You know, um, you can run that far and still shoot. The blue light, uh, sorry, it's the other way around. Blue outline, you can run and still shoot. Yep. If you go into yellow, then you can run, but you, you, you're out of extra actions. Um, that just works. So they, they've kept that and kind of, uh, so Julian got up saying, okay, the old action point system in original XCOM is fiddly and difficult to kind of visualize. And this visualization is much better. So we'll keep that from your XCOM. Um, but if you round a corner and spot an enemy in Phoenix point, the action freezes immediately and it will, retain all of your movement points at that moment oh. so you can round a corner and you'll spot an enemy uh your guy will stop and you'll still have that number of movement points left to spend to get back into cover <laughs> <laughs> uh so is it, it this solves a problem that uh, i think graham especially had uh, with uh, the xcom reboots where 
you can just sort of trigger enemies in yeah. XCOM and XCOM 2 and be like super ambushed with them, often in quite ridiculous situations where yeah. any ordinary human would be able to see that there's a fucking monster <laughs> over there. Yeah. And yeah. that just leads to, that led to me just like, oh, I'll just move like four squares at a time exactly, every yeah. turn because I can't risk triggering a pod yeah, without least, being in cover. Because yeah. the enemy takes a free turn in XCOM when they're activated or triggered. They, they do. They to get some a, extent. They get a free scatter. They don't yes. get like a turn. Yeah, you're right. But that scatter can trigger Overwatch, <laughs> yes, which means that the most effective way to move mm. is to put like move everybody forward one square, put them all on Overwatch, and yep. then move one other guy forward to two squares, <laughs> yep. yeah. and repeat this process until that two square movement triggers. Because if you... Because you are essentially missing out on relatively consequence-free damage mm-hmm. if you don't get that Overwatch off on that scatter, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah the, and then Firex's kind of response to that was to give you hurry-up objectives, where yeah. there are these things that you, like, meld that you need to get you know and like the whole idea of XCOM is that you're going to lose people all the time and this is always the kind of friction point i think for people who really dislike it and people who like, enjoy it is that like people are going to die that it's going to happen you're going to have disastrous missions um and it's kind of up to chance like it, it is just a very hardcore dice game XCOM and it's about kind of managing that where it feels like phoenix point there are many more mitigating factors that actually make, I think will be more appealing to people who dislike the kind of XCOM 2 brutal mm. survivalist thing. Um, it, it's still a difficult game. Uh, it was a, it was a difficult mission in particular. So, uh, basically you're going into this, uh, base over a bridge. Uh, you make it over the base and then at some point, uh, an alien queen turns up and it's the size of a house. <laughs> it's huge. It's like also a crab giant house crab mm. <laughs> uh, giant house crab and it's got like a, a woman's like face. A domesticated crab <laughs> you can have around the house <laughs> and it it walks through scenery just destroys <laughs> any scenery it walks through and it just slowly well not slowly it's very quick to begin with it, um it just scutters towards your guys and anyone it gets up to is gonna is gonna slaughter uh, but because of limb damage you can target its legs to slowly cripple it which reduces oh, cool. its movement speed you target its claws to reduce its attack you can target its body to open up weak spots um and then you can use this is where explosive damage is really good in phoenix point because uh, you know a grenade or you know anything with area of effect will damage all the limbs that it catches mm. um so the way you know julian goes at my shoulder and says oh you probably want to fire rockets to that thing it's a good idea uh so it was so I kind of like formed a firebase in the corner of the map and had like a couple of assault guys, a sniper and a heavy, and the heavy shoots like shoulder mounted rockets that can kind of go around corners and stuff. Uh, so yeah, you're just blowing up this alien queen as it's slowly kind of coming towards you and it's getting slower and slower and slower each time you cripple a limb. Uh, and it ended up like four squares away from my guys when I finally just killed it. <laughs> and it felt like a very different experience to like Fire Axis XCOM. It was a very different type of fight, a very different boss fight. Um, even though it like it looks looks very similar to, to mm. Fire Axis games, and I thought it was really really good. There's loads of, loads of stuff they've done with it that I like. Each soldier has a willpower uh, resource now, and it costs we willpower to go on Overwatch, which is like a mm. key <laughs> point of XCOM. And um, but also you can use willpower to perform extraordinary actions. So your um, your assault warriors can use willpower to take to move, shoot, and then spend willpower to move again. Mm. So if you've got an enemy which has like a shield arm, then uh, you want to attack it from the point where, you know, the shield arm obviously isn't facing. So you can get an assault a soldier around the side of it, then take a shooting action and spill, spend willpower to get it back into cover again. And 
that obviously means it won't be able to Overwatch as effectively for the rest of the fight. But the the the, the combat is full of those those type of decisions that don't really exist in XCOM. Uh, I also really like the status effects. You can inflict bleeding on enemies. Enemies can inflict bleeding on you. Um, you can you're often hitting enemies and doing like glance damage or crippling certain limbs by chance, especially on reaction shots. So the battlefield is like a really reactive mm. kind of. Um, enemies in your squad degrade as combat goes on in variable ways. In XCOM, uh, an enemy that has one health is as effective as it was at max health. Mm. That's not true of Phoenix Point, and that's actually a huge thing in an XCOM-style tactical game where you can actually take pot shots at guys who are unimportant and disable important parts of them and then forget about them and just sort of concentrate on something else. But if that doesn't work, like it, it's still that chance there. So you're still sort of reacting to what's happening. If you're, so your assault soldiers are being shot at every time they get shot at, they take shots back automatically, which is really powerful. Uh, if you happen to shoot back at an alien that's shooting at you and you happen to take its gun arm out, you don't have to worry about that anymore. <laughs> like it, and it's, well, it's moments like that that actually change your strategy on the fly and kind of create these kind of a, more adaptive battlefields that are a little bit, so, uh, ironically, by adding more dice rolls, it's less, there's less variance in it, I think, than mm. XCOM. And that's mm. what's so punishing about XCOM is that, well, in this round, all your guys missed. <laughs> now you're kind of fucked. <laughs> yeah. It's going to have to handle that. And I think the game gives you ways of handling that, but it, it's, it feels less punishing. Mm. If you aim at like a particular limb, is there a chance you'll miss and hit a different limb? Uh, I think it depends on the weapon. Uh, right. Weapons do different types of damage as well. So, um, Different weapons have different penetrative effects. It's much more like simulation-y. It's much more simmy than XCOM. In that if you're uh, shooting at uh, an enemy with a shield, if you've got a heavy gunner, it might penetrate the shield. If you've got a sniper, it probably will penetrate the shield. And But if you're a heavy gunner and it's like scatter shots, you, you could cripple a different limb as well. Right. Especially on reaction shots. So if uh, an enemy is attached to one of your assault guys, they spray back. And it could cripple anything. It could hit anything. It could miss completely. Um, but I think... Six. Yeah. It sounds like it would be like hard to communicate all of the ways this could go. Like you target someone, an enemy, and yeah. it's like, okay, there's a ten percent chance you'll all your bullets will hit and you'll kill it. There's a fifteen percent chance you'll hit its left arm and also its bottom right limb, and this will happen. But then there's another twenty-two percent chance that you'll only yeah. graze its torso and its head. I think that uh, they're definitely still figuring this out, especially the way they display information to you as the player, because um, the UI is, has been in constant flux. Like if you see all the screenshots like throughout its development so far, and the build we played at the PC Gaming Weekend had like a different UI again for how it showed like percentage chances of hitting stuff. I think at the moment, like if you target a certain limb, you're just going to hit that limb. But if it's like right. a spray reaction shot like Overwatch, it could go anywhere. Oh, like, yeah. You can't really guarantee that. Right. I think that's how it works with the current build. But the, 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 um, like Julian and Gollop were saying that they're still thinking about, for example, with Overwatch, instead of it just being a blanket 360 counter shot, that um, they're still think- considering having it be directional and having you point a soldier in a direction and overwatching to a particular point so that you actually have to choose to lock down certain areas mm. with Overwatch. Mm. And they're, they're still like in that stage of experimentation with the system. So it could, it could go in a lot of different ways. But I did yeah, enjoy good. what I played of it. Yeah, I think that the more differences they can make between that and XCOM, the more interesting it becomes to me. Yeah. Because mm. XCOM is really good. So <laughs> yeah, if exactly. you're going to make XCOM, yeah, <laughs> I'd probably yeah, just keep playing XCOM. I, I, I think there's um, <laughs> there's stuff on the... I've not seen any of the strategic map yet, but there are three human factions who are more kind of... Uh, they, Firex has added extra human factions in the latest expansion to XCOM mm. 2. Um, but it was more of... They've 
behave like an upgrade tree rather than other factions that you actually kind of have a relationship with really and mm. um, so i'd be really interested to see if phoenix point could do something different with that and make the other factions more ambiguous and perhaps actually antagon- antagonistic in some ways if you, yeah. you don't get on with them do, do i remember julian saying something like he felt like the the Firaxis XCOM had kind of got the tactical game right but the strategic game was the one that he thought they hadn't done much on that he wanted to focus on or was it the other way around? Because <laughs> it sounds like it certainly made different, made changes to the tactical game. It has, but they 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 have taken a lot from XCOM. I, th- I think particularly in um, presentation. So you're getting those over the sh- over the shoulder cam shots of things happening. Mm. You, you've got the same kind of like movement UI for it and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it, so much depends on also classes and how they develop and. You know, what the cool upgrades for those classes are, which I, I, th- I really loved about XCOM, the Fire Axis XCOM is, th- is the fact that, especially after a few expansions, you could get some fucking cool upgrades for your soldiers. You could make some amazing, cool heroes, and that was a big, big part of the game for me. Mm. So we have to see how Phoenix Point handles all that stuff. We're not seeing any of the proper overmap stuff. It's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to um, Battletech so much, oh, actually. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, cause, well, because weirdly, like... Um, locational damage or, or like limb damage is a perfect fit for this kind of game yeah and traditionally it's something that has always been a strength of mech games mm. like mech um, into the breach is a mech game but doesn't have this like <laughs> yeah. it, because it's really l- like the logic of of limb damage and component damage can be really easily expressed in a mech game whereas in other kinds of games it's hard to do it realistically um because you know a human being with that arm blown off is probably a like an not incapacitated so human being. Yeah. Um, however, you explaining that means actually crabs. Crabs are the perfect <laughs> organic solution to this. Um, nature's mech, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of having an enemy that you can readily kind of blow bits off and kind of know what that's going to give you. Yeah. And like, I understand that it could probably still walk. walk yes, it, exactly. Yeah. Spiders as well to an extent, but they're, yeah, yeah they're, they have less of the kind of, um, slow readability of a crab <laughs> uh, this is how my, my rating scheme for animals now <laughs> spiders like the limb targeting is just would you like to target leg one yeah, leg two say, yeah. leg three because they all do the same thing yeah exactly whereas crabs have specialised limbs <laughs> yep yes uh, the brilliant thing about Battletech is, is that the mercenary lifestyle it sounds like it simulates the idea that you're in it yeah. for the buck right and you can be betrayed on missions by your employers and stuff hmm. like that that sounds really interesting yeah I, also actually talking back to Into the Breach the thing I really liked about Battletech is the soft fail it's right. soft fails which I'm sure I talked about in the pod before but the fact that um, you get paid for the amount of mission you do and obviously it's much better to finish the mission but it's not um, there's a few different layers to it so when you agree to take the mission um, you adjust a slider between money and scrap for what you want. And money is obviously money, which is always good f- fueling and, and repairing and stuff. Uh, scrap is not an abstract. It's an absolute mechanic. So um, <clears throat> you say you can maybe, instead of taking 10,000 credits, you take four pieces of scrap. And th- that simply means you get first pick of any four things that fall off mechs <laughs> in that game, in that mission. So if you go in, if you say, give me, if you know you're going up against a very well-armed opponent, you say, give me maximum scrap rights to this, then you potentially have the ability to get really good stuff, super cheap, because you blow it off the enemy mech and take it. However, that means then playing in a way where you avoid limb damage. You want then yeah. to be sh- like killing every enemy mech with a precision shot to the pilot, to the cockpit, 
to avoid damaging the stuff that you've just <laughs> paid, quote unquote, for the right to take. Like that cool. sort of thing I really like as a kind of That's really cool. a way. And then both of those rewards are mitigated by how many of the objectives of the mission you actually manage to do. So if you have to pull out to save you the cost of repairing after a mission gone wrong, then maybe you get a quarter or whatever. You take a reputation hit, mm. something like that. Mm. That stuff I really, really like. I love to see more games. That. Kind of a version of that, um, uh, that sort of salvage consideration in Captain Forever because it was all modular damage. Like every, mm. every enemy is made of just guns and, and hull bits and thrusters and stuff. And they have a cockpit. If you destroy, destroy the cockpit, the whole ship is, is dead. Uh, and after it's dead, all of the things that you haven't destroyed yet, you can just take. So, uh, it might have really nasty guns and the, the most combat efficient way to do it is to take out the guns so it can't fight back. But then at the end of the fight, you don't get to take those guns. Whereas if you can somehow, you know, snipe the cockpit first, then, um, you just get to take all its stuff. Yeah. That's how I really love to fight that. Any, any mechanic that, um, that's it. I think the successful way of merging the strategic game and the kind of meta game mm. is, mm. is having your kind of economic considerations or where you want to go with your upgrades and things like really affect the decisions you make. And it's something that Into the Breach does well, I think, with what we were saying about the sub-objectives, the fact that yeah. you, you end up focusing on the sub-objectives that solve a macro problem for you. Um, it just sounds that maybe offering mega rewards for getting all of them pushes that over into making it feel mandatory rather yeah. than allowing it to be this sort of like, how do I make the best of this bad situation? Yeah. Like, basically, all of these games are basically like best of a bad situation games right like it is like <laughs> yeah. trying to get the best out of um a, a situation where you're expected to fail a bit which is i think what makes them interesting because most video games don't approach you in that way they mm-hmm. approach with a view to like how do you succeed rather than how do you fail upwards yeah i think I, I should probably be playing into the breach on hard now like i've been playing on normal and some squads are really difficult on normal for me but the default squad would now be pretty easy for me on normal. Mm. Um, so I should probably just start playing on hard and see what squads I can do. And, and that way, you know, there's no way I'm going to get every objective. <laughs> it's always going to be like, yeah. which thing do I want to lose? Mm. A clean into the breach level is a great, is a great feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Already. I really like, I really like when you I, actually, yes, I agree. However, my favorite victories are the ones where you know exactly how much manageable damage you can take because obviously your mech damage is repaired at the end of the game yeah for free um i had a a cool one in my last run where it was a map where a certain number of blocks of the map will uh, vanish or collapse and become ravines Mm. um every turn and this ended with a ravine forming across the center of the map um impassable by anything that can't fly and all of the surviving uh alien monsters were the ranged beetle guys that fire out of their bombs and so i was consistently shelling behind them to push them into the ravine <laughs> but i could only kind of remove one a turn that way and obviously my tank can shoot them but that's not that useful push them away yeah i can push them away mm. or maybe push them out of line of sight but i can't you know it's just a gunfight across a ravine at that point <laughs> um and then on the final turn it'd gone pretty perfectly otherwise it was sort of you know i, I could do a two that were going to fire at buildings i didn't want to take any damage to the buildings obviously i could shell one uh, to push it into the hole and that works really well and then the most logical thing to do is to take my toughest mech the punch guy who hasn't been doing much for a while because there's a ravine in the way and just stand him in front of the final yeah, bullet totally. and i really <laughs> like that is uh obviously it's a it's a you know 
it's not a game that necessarily has like a cinematic sense of what's going on because they're the tiniest little kaiju <laughs> and the tiniest little mechs. I like the the flavor stuff in Into the Breach, like when you the mechs yeah, drop down, cool. you see the little speech bubbles come up, like "Hey, yeah. look!" <laughs> or when you fuck up and they're like, "Everyone I know is dead." <laughs> I love the guy who says, "What was that?" Like, <laughs> three mechs left. Yes, yeah, just, just woken up. <laughs> the fuck's going on? When I killed those uh, that cluster of enemies with the acid thing that, that ended up uh, causing me a huge amount of trouble. Uh, you know, I killed like four alpha class enemies in one shot and the building next to it just said, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I like that like the final blow is taken by that mech and because mm-hmm. that your mechs are healed between missions, that's like, yeah, I took one hit in the entire mission, but it was like at the perfect time and in the perfect way to kind of n- end with that neatness that I really like. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's an unexplored thing. Like in XCOM being hit is always bad and most of the time it is in these games, but I like whenever there are sort of there are things you definitely want to do want to protect, but there are things that you can afford to kind of spend, like the grid in, in Into the Breach to an extent as well. Like, again, from a design point of view, I really like it when these games allow you to willingly fail a bit in a particular direction because you feel like it's the most manageable thing. That's yeah. so much more interesting than saves coming to protect every single one of your yeah. resources, whatever they yeah, form they take. Yeah. Tell that to Rich McCormick. <laughs> <laughs> uh What have you been playing, Chris? Um, <laughs> I've been playing Mime that I would like some more whiskey. Um, <laughs> good so game. I've actually You've won. <laughs> thinking about it. I've also been playing a game with interesting fail states. Um, so there's actually a kind of theme to this episode, which is going to be failing upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our message for the week. So I've been playing Hunt Showdown, um, which is um, Crytek's new game. I think it was announced at E3 last year, and it's just come out in early access. And I took a bit of gamble, just bought it straight up in early access, in its early access version, um, out of interest. Um, it is a very experimental multiplayer shooter, um, kind of thing I like. And I actually, I think it's pretty promising. I, um, as a kind of experimental, um, asymmetrical multiplayer shooter that I like, um, I feel like that may be the death mark. <laughs> um, but, so it is a, it, the best, these way to, it's, it's kind of, I've not played anything like it actually, although, um, I think it's got shades of Killing Floor, uh, Left for Dead, Evolve, Daisy, PUBG. It's in somewhere in that mix, but it's very different to all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it plays very different to all of those things. So the, um, so it is a, uh, competitive monster hunting game with, a macro sort of a development kind of building up characters element that is probably closer weirdly to an XCOM game or something like that than you'd think given that it's a shooter, first person multiplayer shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you, uh, the setup is that it's sort of, I think it's like the late, uh, 19th century kind of thing. You're in the Louisiana Bayou, you're in the spooky Bayou, the kind of the bad monster Bayou. And, um, there's one map, one uh, large map, which is stretches of swampland, pathways, sort of country roads, um, farmsteads, fisheries, all of the shit things that can be in the countryside. <laughs> all the worst countryside places, mm. spooky farms, uh, canneries where everything looks sharp, um, house full of glass, <laughs> big old pile of rusty nails. Like it's all of these kinds of like uh, things that will give you tetanus. Like, um, that's where it's set in, in, you know, in terms of backwards country horror. Um, and this environment has been sort of possessed by a hell spirit, which has caused 
to zombies and monsters and stuff to arrive but like it's its version of a zombie plague is more like a single demon possessing lots of different corpses that kind of thing so it's got that kind of so hunt down the source is that the idea sort of yeah so you've got this sort of um yeah so it has this sort of uh deep gothic kind of horror thing to it like it's not a a viral outbreak or a or it may take the form of a plague, but it's it's something sort of like in the in the tradition of of that kind of southern gothic horror. It is because there's some sort of rot of evil at the core of this mm. sort of uh, rural wilderness. And uh, you play as a, uh, a a sad cowboy, a sad randomly generated cowboy. That's that's what you describe it. Just a man with a droopy mustache and a hat. Um, who has a little piece of hell in him. <laughs> and, um, and that little piece of hell allows you to find, um, clues that will lead you to a boss monster. Um, <laughs> That's the most video game thing I've ever yeah. heard. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so th- it's kind of interesting because the atmosphere is super important. One of the reasons that it's good is it looks fucking amazing. Mm. Like it really is an extraordinary looking game. It's a crytek game. So it's a cry engine game and it's pushing that engine to its kind of what it can do, which really showing what it can do. Um, uh, the environments look incredible. The sound design is amazing. It uses binaural sound like Hellblade. Um, oh, cool. it has incredible binaural sound and, um, and tons. Of, the monsters are really beautifully designed. Um, I saw Marsh say, I think in, in our, in, in one of our chats about it, that like some of its screenshots kind of make you, I think if you don't like multiplayer games or you don't like these kinds of games, you kind of wish, Oh, I wish this was a survival horror. Mm-hmm. It looks, it's, um, in terms of fidelity, it's not miles off Resident Evil 7. And it's a multiplayer game well, with a similar sort of setting. Yeah. Like it's, it's really does look incredible. Um, and all of the weapons are sort of, uh, Western kind of Winchesters and revolvers. And this was, despite Killing Floor being set in like near future Cockney apocalypse Britain. No one knows uh, what that was. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, the best weapons in Killing Floor were all like the bolt action rifles and like the revolt, you know, the really oh, clunky yeah, guns. Right? That, it has that. It has, uh, it has the Killing Floor. Um, the world's most gratifying death stapler thing, like um, that, and that works in its favor as well. And um, and all of that stuff's super important for feel and how atmosphere and stuff. Um, but then as a game, what happens is, so you have a big map, but I think it's only eight players at a time. And you, you, the kind of the 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 default way to play is you load in with a friend. It's duos, so four pairs of people. I think it's I think it's eight total. It's not much more than that. Mm. Um, so you can either load them with a friend, you can load them with a stranger, and then you are obviously on the same team, or you can load in solo. And if you load in solo, you're not in a. It's not a you know everyone's solo. It'll just put two solo players in a game that is otherwise okay. duos. So the odds are kind of stacked against you, but there are reasons you might want to do that. So, um, and then the, the goal in a given match is, um, by using your dark sight, which is kind of, it's a really nicely implemented kind of like dark vision mode where your vision washes out, but you can see glows in the distance, which indicate where clues might be found. Um, every time you find a clue, it blanks out a a big chunk of the map and says the boss isn't here. And then when you find three clues, it will pinpoint whichever kind of point of interest the boss is actually in, like which farm it's in and that kind of thing. There are two bosses at the moment. One is called the Butcher, which is a big Texas Chainsaw Massacre pig head scary man. Yeah. Um, and the other is called the Spider. Yeah. Uh, it's a big spider. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the two most original bosses. <laughs> yeah, it's not like, I don't think as horror, it's not mega original. It's just well executed. So mm. it's like the, you know, the atmosphere is really great and like feels right. Yeah. The, sorry, Chris. The, oh. um, um, 
the the E3 demo, the videos have seen it, but that spider thing, the animation on it is fucking mm. horrendous. Mm. Like it's really terrifying. Like it, it, I've never seen giant spiders. The, uh, one of the most cliche villains in video games, but I've never it's a seen a real good one. Yeah, or bad one. Yeah, <laughs> bad one, I imagine. Um, and these bosses, they, you don't need the clues to find them. You could stumble into the oh, place shit. where they are and be murdered by them. Like, that's, you know, they're just there on the map. Mm. When the boss dies, um, you, when you, you fight the boss, when the boss dies, uh, it has to be banished back to hell, um, which takes about three minutes, during which time, um, its location is revealed to everybody. Mm. Because when anyone uses their dark sight then, they see lightning bolts coming down out of the sky at the place where the boss died. So it's, it's, there's no more clues for anybody else. Yeah. And then when the boss has been banished, um, it's on its body are two bounties, like kind of some kind of like chunk of its hell stuff. <laughs> um, cool. More hell stuff, which, um, you, the goal of the game to, to win the game, you take that at which point you were constantly being struck by lightning. In, <laughs> I'm so in, glad I took this hell stuff <laughs> in the dark vision. So if anyone who dark vision oh, can then they kind of blind themselves you, to yeah. do it, but they can see the lightning coming down. <laughs> on you. Um, they blind themselves to everything else, uh, which includes all the other monsters on the map. Um, but they can see you. And then your goal is to grab that and then get to um, one of three randomly placed um, extraction points that are around the f- edges of the map. Which are there from the start of the game. So that's, that's the game basically. I mean, you extract, you get the points and that's, that's kind of the thing. However, what's kind of neat about it? Um, there's lots of things that I think are neat about it. I have promise. Um, so, um, it's not the reason you do this is, uh, to level up your account and your characters. Uh, when you start, you get given $666, the devil's wallet. <laughs> um, and you, uh, you buy a character out of you there's no when i say buy in all the contexts where i'm going to say buy i mean i don't mean real money i mean with your in-game resources so you go to the recruit page and you can spend money on a a little lineup of sad cowboys and you can spend more or less money Mm. so you can spend quite a lot of money for a guy with a good passive trait which might make him faster and some good guns or you can cheap out and get a guy who has like just a shitty rifle and a machete or something like that um and then when you play as those characters um they level up and they get, you can, you can buy them new gear. So you can go and buy them a lantern or something from the store. Um, and, uh, when you, everything you do in a match, uh, contributes XP and money to that character. So, you know, if you just go into a match, um, even if you just load in solo, if you find a couple of clues, kill a couple of zombies, maybe kill another player and then extract, even if you extract really early, you take all that with you. So sometimes you might as well just leave. Like there's nothing stopping you just leaving the mission. If you like, particularly if you've gone in with a character that you have some investment in to get them out, because if you die, that character has gone and that character and death is real quick. Mm. Like someone can just shoot you in the head and you're dead. Like that's it. So, and when you lose a character, half of that character's experience gets dumped into your bloodline, which is your account. So that's your kind of consistent level across all of your characters. Right. And the level of your bloodline affects what's available to you in the shop. So there's a kind of consistent progress. Like after a while, you can buy a cheap character and cut them with good gear because you can get it because you've unlocked it over time. Mm. Um, but it's kind of a neat system because it means that like it's, I, I mean, so as a competitive game, I don't know, like I don't know how much it's going to hold together as like a super competitive experience, but just loading in to kind of experience the environment and the, and the, the tension and the atmosphere of it. And then having that balance of like, do you press on or do you 
try and extract with what you've got so far and knowing that um everyone else in the mission is facing the same decision is, is kind of is really interesting mm. i've i have i've won one mission i've only been playing solo and it was just really interesting experience it was like 45 minutes matches i think are capped an hour but it was like 45 minutes of just um i picked uh because i've been playing solo and not doing spectacularly well i'd lost a couple of characters then i went in uh and i picked you pick which boss you want to hunt and what time of day and then the rest of it is up to matchmaking. Well, I hunt the hell spider at tea time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Um, but I found playing at night, the night missions, they're, they're terrifying, but also, like, they're good for solo, because mm. you're probably gonna be able to stay in the bushes and things. Definitely a camping game to some extent, but mm. it's kind of, it fits the fiction. Um, and, um, yeah, stealth is super important, but basically like gunshots, the sound design is fucking great and gunshots can be heard basically across the map. Like mm-hmm. any of the eight players fire a gun, you can hear it. You can't tell where it came from because the sound travels so far. It might be a not useful distance away in terms of indicating where things are, but the, the maps are full of like ambient sound causing things. So a, a spooky barn will have like cans hanging from chains from the ceiling and if you creep into them they will rattle in a particular way mm-hmm. when you learn what to listen for that's an indicator there's a player nearby because otherwise it doesn't offer you any feedback at all there's no kill feed there's nothing like that yeah. i think there's a system although i haven't even confirmed this i think when a player dies a couple of seconds later there's a rumble of thunder and sometimes a lightning bolt because i've been counting them to try and figure out who's <laughs> left yeah um but that's it like it really is like super bare bones but you get like um there are very good crows it has good <laughs> well rendered crows that kind of like gaggle and caw and then if you walk into them they take off and you can see crows leave bushes in the distance and know someone's just moved through there but it could have been a zombie that just moved through there right there are um dogs in cages that will bark at you and keep barking if you disturb them and so i when one time i played with a duo my duo buddy just turned around to take a machete to a couple of cages full of dogs to shut them up and it was like genuinely like <laughs> kind of horrible but like <laughs> this is the atmosphere atmosphere it's going for yeah, sure. there are half dying half eaten horses hmm. that are like sat in fields and some of them aren't dead yet and they'll start swinny screaming <laughs> when you go close to them which is horrible but also like you see a man sort of panic and pull a pistol and fire it at a horse that's just started screaming at him and then he gets shot by someone else who heard the gunshot and that's the kind of you know Mm. no one's done that with a multiplayer fps in my experience like the full-on like this is horrible horror kind of thing and i thought it was quite effective Mm. um the one i've won was like i was like i thought i'd just go in to creep around a bit and see what happened and probably escape and then quite early, I, I bumped into a guy who was facing the wrong way. So I shot him in the back of the head, another player. And then I kept exploring. And then while exploring the spooky farm, um, I heard a gate open and it's terrifying. Like it's cracked my hay bale and I could hear footsteps. And then this guy rounded the corner and just like unloaded my revolver into his chest at point blank range and he died. But he went down and, and his, his mate was still alive somewhere because you can tell if someone's been downed because their partner's still alive or if they die immediately because they're solo. Hmm. And. Um, and I couldn't, so I waited, I tried to hide in a toilet and then I got slightly stuck in the door of the toilet, uh, which is definitely an early access issue. Um, and then I left that place and found another clue, but the clue then revealed that the boss was actually in that farm where I'd encountered that guy. Mm. And when I'd killed him, I think he was coming in to help his mate who'd found the boss because then I went and found the boss who was the butcher. Um, 
and I found at the bottom of a ladder leading to a relatively safe attic the body of another player, which I'm pretty sure was the partner of the guy that I'd killed in the first place. Then I managed to kill the boss basically by kind of kiting it and trying to shoot it from above and then hiding when it came around the corner and, and stuff. But that was a really tense experience because I didn't know if someone was going to hear my shots. Like I didn't know if people were coming, you know, if anyone else had found the same clues and were on their way. Mm. And then did the banishing and hid like frightened in the corner while well, the banishing happened, waiting for other players to show up. Then I took the bounty and ran. And it was only by the time I reached the extraction caravan that I realized that I was the last person alive. <laughs> and I'd probably been the last person alive for a while. Mm. Like the other players had found and killed each other. People had died to monsters. Um, because it has like a full, like, um, sort of bestiary of like left for dead style zombie types. It has like regular zombies. It has, um, women full of bees. Um, <laughs> it has, uh, armored zombies. It also has, um, dead space style limb damage. Speaking of Phoenix point limb damage, actually. So, mm. um, hitting things in the legs slows them down and you can attack arms and things to kind of try and buy yourself a bit of time to escape. There's loads going for it. It's super interesting. Like, I think, um, whether or not I'd, recommend it in its current state is kind of an interesting thing because i think it's really interesting and at the moment you can definitely find a game pretty quickly but because it's so bleak <laughs> and so hard i wonder if it will find like a long-term audience that's my kind of interest in it at the moment because i think it's super interesting and like you know i'm kind of into a game that allows you to have gunfights with old-timey pistols while trying to avoid spooking zombies in a spooky bayou. Mm. But that's a very specific cell. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not the kind of uh, one-size-fits-all murder-orienteering that PUBG is. It sounds amazing. Um, like, conceptually, it sounds brilliant. I like, I love, really like the idea that if you shoot a player, you've sort of semi-permadeathed the character that they have. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah the yeah. stakes there are really cool. Like, the idea that, you know... It's obviously very hard to find players and kill them, but that really means something. And if yeah. you get killed, it really means something. So, it, you know, that those stakes don't exist in typical multiplayer shooters, right? You just go. Yeah, yeah. You, you well, it was funny. Like, so I won that game, right? Got the bounty out. And yeah. that was enough to take that character from level one to level 10. Like, just <laughs> you know, huge bounty on it. Because yeah. there's like, there. Are, so if you get killed extracting the bounty, for example, you still get quite a lot out of that. It's still worth trying. They've, they've, they've calibrated it to a point where like, your account will get quite a lot out of a failed attempt. Right. So it's not like all, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not punishing to the point where no one does anything mm. for fear of losing their good character. Sure. But as soon as I did that, I spent some of that money recruiting another character to mess around with. Cause I didn't want to go into like, I'll probably save my level 10 guy for when yeah, I go sure. play with a friend or something. Yeah, yeah. And if I lose him, that sucks. But then again, it's only one mission away from getting it back. Mm. Like it is cool. Like I don't think, I wonder how much that will really put people off because it's not that punishing, if you know what I mean. Like you just, you know, ultimately your ability to aim and shoot a gun and be in the right place at the right time is more important than any upgrade that character might have. But there is some sense of like, I have a bit of history with this guy and I don't mm. want him to get shot in the head out of nowhere. So I'm going to be super careful. Yeah. Like, got your own little stable of, you know, mooks and guys you actually care about. Just real like. sad cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, yeah, that sounds super interesting. I, I think as someone who, like it doesn't tend to be interested in like super hyper competitive FPS scenarios or that kind of thing. A more kind of atmospheric take um, mm. really appeals to me. I, think I would, I would certainly play that with friends, you know, I love that idea that sort of the, the XP is proportional to the, um, to the challenge. 
and you can just level up 10 times in like with one bounty <laughs> yeah yeah that's something i always hate it in um rpgs in particular where like uh you know my fondest memory of morrowind was breaking into like a really high level mansion very early on and just stealing something that was worth sixty-eight thousand gold <laughs> and it was just like that is just you know 10 times what i uh could ever dream to make in my first like five hours in this game and so now i just have this one breastplate a it's great and i can just wear it uh but also b if i ever want to buy anything ever I can put this up for trade and take everything the shopkeeper has and he'll still <laughs> owe me like 10,000 gold. <laughs> yeah. The Kingdom Come Deliverance is like that. I break into a place where you, it's like, you, it doesn't break the game. It just means that, uh, you know, you're suddenly very advantaged. There's <laughs> <laughs> definitely like, I like seeing multiplayer used to furnish an experience rather than some, everything be um, super competitive. Like mm. it's, it doesn't feel like it's designed, it, it feels like it's designed to furnish a horror experience, which is kind of counterintuitive because I imagine most people who like horror games think of that exclusively as a kind of scripted, well, maybe not scripted fully, but like as a kind of authored single player mm. thing, right? Like, and I've always really loved the potential of multiplayer for that. Like, I love the AVP games, like given how much I like Alien Isolation, right? Yeah. Like, um, that's kind of my kind of super generous, like 15 year old self was capable of kind of investing aliens versus predator multiplayer with us with something like that where you'd almost not role play but you'd almost role you know what i mean like you, you kind of wanted to spook other players right you wanted to play the alien in a way oh, that yeah. was scary yeah that game totally gave you the tools to ambush in a, in a way that you know the alien would frighten people like mm. that game was frightening in multiplayer you know as it was in single player yeah I, I think um the hidden in a way feels like it feels like the pvp mode of a weird resident evil mmo like that's probably the best way to explain it like that um the permadeath stuff doesn't connect to an rpg system that's quite so robust that it would mean as much to you as losing your character you'd have invested something in other modes yeah sure but it's got scope to expand in that direction it's just a super interesting idea it reminds me a lot of um it's got a real like this uh, the production values are very very high but it has a real like latter day half-life one mod kind of total conversion feel mm. to it like you know that that sort of like i mean i run it like something like the hidden um john's um uh mod project like yeah those kinds of crytek have form for ripping that game off <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> uh, crisis 3's multiplayer was just the hidden yeah <laughs> quite yeah, true. um and it's yeah it's, it's cool to see that survive i've been interested to see how it does it seems to be doing all right because you know you find games fairly quickly in the middle of the day which is which mm. is good and i think it'll only improve and it'll only benefit so like one of the modes that isn't activated yet is um, it spawns both bosses, which is an interesting idea that there are two on <laughs> the map and that'll split the players up. Um, hmm. I think it'd be interesting to see what it was like with more players. Cause at the moment it feels very kind of like the first time you meet a player is, is very life or death. It mm. feels a lot like, um, you know, um, battlegrounds. Pu- yeah. But well, battlegrounds is a uh, PUBG is a very like high frequency <laughs> game in terms of how regularly you hit other people and get into a fight yeah particularly as you get a bit better at it when you're a bit better at it and you tend to survive fights or you tend to position yourself in the right place for them like you can expect to have a couple of firefights in a game whereas this um so far for me has felt very like do or die and sometimes like i've definitely had characters that i've just lost with nothing i could you know what i mean just because yeah. when someone else gets the drop on you like that first bullet to the head sometimes that's it 
that's that's that character gone and you have to kind of accept that about it i think yeah which is people are going to find off putting like if you want a fair chance of winning every encounter you get into then it's probably not that game you, you do have a fair chance but it's like mm. don't get snuck up on from someone in the bushes <laughs> don't get don't accidentally aggro the the woman full of bees because <laughs> it's very obvious when that happens because other people players know to look to where the bees are going yeah. <laughs> that's where you are yeah. it's called hive no, hive. hive. <laughs> that, sorry, the, the, the woman full of bees the is called hive. Um, it's called Hunt Showdown, which it isn't a great name. Is it? Is there a the in there? No, anyway? it's. I don't just, think so. I think it's just it's Hunt Colon yeah. Showdown. Okay. Um, it, it does include both of those things, <laughs> like the hunt, the show, the down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, shunt Hoedown. <laughs> <laughs> the. Uh, Country dance dancing horror <laughs> dance game. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's good. Um, you need a I, dance mat and a friend to push over. <laughs> yeah, it, actually, it's got me looking forward to like uh, Vermintide too, which is out very soon as well. Oh, it's yeah. in that kind of bracket of like the uh, the many mini left deads that are kind of spread out across the ether. Been playing the beta with uh, the Peace Gamer chaps this week, and man, they've improved the melee in that game. That's good, super good, and it's really gory and really. Really nice. The, the levels are much better as well. Mm. Really like Vermintide. Really yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. He's legitimately good. One of the best tides. Yep. Of, of all the seas <laughs> of things I can be swamped with, <laughs> this is among my favourite. But it's also tides of topless men with axes in Vermintide 2, because Chaos uh, Legions as, as well. That's not such a good title for a game. Man-tide. <laughs> Man-tide. Man-tide. Uh, it's good. Don't aggro a Man-tide pod. <laughs> oh, God. Should we do questions? Hell, hell yes. Okay, good. Excellent. Marvellous. All right. So uh, the first question comes from Glenn, who writes, Dear Cratergeddon and Crowbees, episode 226 about the nor- notorious BOP was immensely enjoyable. Regrettably, my question is not about homing bees or angry octopuses. While listening to the perspectives of Pip, Tom, and Alex to a question about taking breaks from gaming, I began to think about the relationship between game duration and available time. I recently became a first-time dad to a new baby girl. Congratulations. As my life has shifted to this happy occasion, so is my time for playing games. Over the past several months, my list of installed games has migrated from longer experiences to games that primarily feature rewarding experiences and quick, repeatable loops, such as Spelunky, FTL, Heat Signature, XCOM, Enemy Within, and Invisible Ink. Have any of you found yourself in, sim- in similar gaming moods for a particular season of life? If so, what games were on your list? Thank you for your podcast. It is one of the regular highlights of my week. Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. That's a very good list. It is a very good <laughs> list. Say. And it's kind of the list of, uh, we've definitely had the, uh, games I can play in short sessions because I've just had a child, games I can play with, uh, one hand while I'm cradling said child, those <laughs> kinds of questions we've had a bunch of different ways. And those yeah. tend to be the games we recommend. So I'm surprised XCOM is in his list as things that, that he can dip into and out of because I find XCOM is like eight hours at a time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's one mission. <laughs> yep. Yeah. My missions literally are because I, I, did a let's play at some point and you know they did end up being like an hour or two hours sometimes um i find yeah there's definitely like there are times in my life when i just the role of gaming is just going to be to relieve stress so i don't want to play anything new or anything that's going to challenge my brain mm. in any way and my go-to for that um is batman arkham city mm, yeah, i think they're like sort of challenge arenas and that where yeah. you just i just want to beat up like a hundred guys <laughs> Yeah, DMC is my equivalent. I've played through DMC multiple, multiple times because 
it's just guaranteed instant satisfaction. The mm. combat system feels so good and so well designed that it's just, you know, quality every time you play it. Mm. I think actually Into the Breach is um, going to slot into uh, that kind of thing for me. Uh, and maybe Slay the Spire as well. Um, both of them I find incredibly addictive. So if there's ever a time when I need to like just take my mind off something, those are both good go-tos because I know as soon as I start playing, I'll just be 100% engrossed. Mm. Recently, like, I've had a sort of return to games, like, not that I went away for any particular length of time, particularly given what I do for a living, but um, I definitely had a period where I wasn't playing games. I wasn't losing weekends to games, for example. Like, I, I, I definitely com- almost completely left the opposite of this, which is, like, <laughs> deep investment games. And then mm-hmm. Subnautica was something that drew me back in. But since then, um, the sort of tension for me has been balancing um, sort of game time against other things I want to do with my free time. And given that I work for myself, I have to make sure I balance that very carefully because uh, when I'm not working, I'm just unemployed. That's that's how that works. So there's an element of like, if I have an hour free, what I do with it is has become way more important to me than it was when I was salaried. Because when I was salaried, you know, there's always, you know, it's... It feels like there's always more holiday in a way, whereas it feels a bit more precious now. Mm. And um, that's coincided with a return to Dota, which is kind of my go-to, like, half an hour to an hour to kill thing, because I'll be reliably kind of busy in that time. And I've actually drifted away from PUBG because I didn't necessarily feel like it was always furnishing every half an hour with a kind of valuable thing. Um, I found that... Um, and games that I can get a really meaningful kind of narrative experience out relatively quickly um hellblade so we're talking about dmc another ninja theory game from a different kind of angle um hellblade's been great for that um because it's not mega long but it's nicely compartmentalized which i appreciate and um sort of that i guess it's kind of that kind of min maxing of time has led me to kind of um also led me to games like Hunt, which obviously I already talked about in this episode, but because that is a kind of, um, intense, very, like, very tense, um, often scary half hour, usually. That's, again, something I can kind of deploy while I'm taking a break between bouts of work, or sometimes if I'm, like, having a painting afternoon or, or a creative writing afternoon, like while I, you know, if I want to take a break while I wait for something to dry, either literally in terms of paint or <laughs> in my brain, then then something like Dota or Hunt is the kind of thing I go to. I think I more regularly now, or you know, more regularly generally go to multi like short form competitive things rather than like FTL runs like yeah. I used to. That said, Into the Breach is very likely to bring me back into the mm-hmm. I'll do one run and see where I go way of spending my time. Yeah, I'm enjoying Monster Hunter at the moment for that. Mm. That chunks itself in a lot. It really gives you lots of different ways to chunk it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, a big series Monster Hunt going to last, last 50 minutes, and it tells you that's the time limit on on this hunt. Can't last longer. Probably going to you know probably last about like half an hour to 40 minutes. But I enjoy games increasingly that give you that time framework. Mm. Where it's like, yeah, I can spend that amount of time on doing this, and if I've only got like 20 minutes, I can hunt some wildlife uh just generic wildlife which is very easy to do and gets you kind of materials and stuff uh yeah so thank you games that just tell us how much time a thing is going to take probably <laughs> yeah. yeah i think 
I think that's the thing. Like, it's not so much short games. It's like session time, games. It? Yeah, it's yeah. the kind of mm. thing I found myself um, gravitating towards as the years have gone on. We haven't talked about this before, but like, it's been so long since, or it feels like it's been so long since I've like lost a summer to a single big RPG mm. rather than play those RPGs in kind of fits and starts where I can. Yeah. Trying to render sessions out of something that's really not designed for it. Yeah. I've had it. I've, it happens only occasionally for me now, but Horizon Zero Dawn was one where mm. I, I really just got so into that. Yeah. I that was my, my last big time sink as well. Um, I did go, I did go through The Witcher 3 that way as well, just being really into it and enjoying that for, for a bit. But yeah. And the, the last time before that was probably Mass Effect, like mm. not Andromeda, but the, the trilogy. That's, like the last thing I got so invested in that's mm. that trilogy. I absolutely loved it. It was so into all the characters and it, that that's a great memory associated with that game. Not a session game though. No, no, no. But, I like, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to like, I think, I think Tides of Numenera was the last thing that I sort of oh, yeah, that's to great take a well. lot of time into. I didn't make it to the end, but I remember getting super engrossed in it for mm. just like about a month. Yeah. And, and that's to some extent works as a session game because every, every, there's very little that's wrote in that game. Yeah. Um, it's all kind of interesting, so you can dip in. But that said, it is also a big, I, like, I remember when they were previewing that game, or when I was interviewing them about it very, very early on, they talked about a game that was actually pretty short, but very broad, so yeah. that you'd not see all of it in a single run, but you'd kind of finish it relatively quickly. And that's kind of not what it turned out to be. Not mm. in a bad way, but it's actually not insubstantially long. Like, it's not as long as Pillars of Eternity or Baldur's Gate 2 or any of the kind of big games in that genre, but it's not a short game. No. And, I still kind of want, I think, the relatively short CRPG, mm. like, but with that density. Like, that's the, that's the extraordinary yeah. thing about Numenera is that it had that kind of uh, just the amount of story in a given, you know, six inches square of space on the on <laughs> in any given map was is extraordinary in that game. And the amount of kind of world building that it kind of casually does through conversation is just is so exciting. Yeah, it's great. Like, I, I think I just want like, I want the CRPG that's basically like one. D and D arc in length, mm. right? If you think about when we did our D and D Christmas special, and that was like one mad afternoon for us and eight hours of podcasts for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, there aren't really there are there isn't as uh, that I can think of. There's no eight hour Baldur's Gate game, right? There mm. isn't. Though uh, recently, actually, I've been playing Oxen Free, mm. uh, which is it's not a game of that level of depth at all. But it is a relatively short game that goes in many different potential directions. And I'm only probably about halfway through it, I think. But I can already see all the places where I've diverged from potential outcomes mm, and mm. kind of alienated characters and stuff like that. <laughs> and maybe adventure games are great for this. Yeah, maybe. maybe. You know, shorter adventure games with many, many different outcomes. That game does the telltale thing of telling you, like, how many people did the same decision as you at the end, which is that. really cool. Yeah, I love that. Hmm. Our next uh, question is more of a statement, but it's a good statement, mm. so I should read it out, because uh, that's how this works. And it's from Chris, who writes, This week, Oddwood Frenry and I spent much of the week working on Pico 8 games in the hash game deg... Game deg? Game deg. <laughs> Don't go there. Deg good your job. games there. Good job, game developers. <laughs> um, in the hash game dev channel on the Crate and Crowbar Discord, this was for the Fantasy Console Game Jam. I ended up making a roguelike heavily inspired by the works of Michael Bro called Bro Like Turbro. <laughs> and Oddwood created an incredibly fun and unique game about sailing and navigating a ship using the technology of the 1600s. It was Oddwood's first game and it's incredibly fun and unique. Uh, that game is called 
shipwreck with a uh, apostrophe that is a pun that I don't understand. Oh my because God. I've had a <laughs> couple of drinks. Tom, do you understand it? No. Where's the apostrophe? At the end. <laughs> no, <laughs> Links in the show notes, everybody. Sometimes written down puns don't work so good when spoke by a drunk man. <laughs> Who knew? Anyway. Which continues, I found the CNC Game Dev Discord channel has been a really positive place to talk about development and technology online. There are a bunch of friendly people who are usually there hanging out, talking about games. From a couple of professional game devs, some developers who make games as a hobby, and some people learning development to make games. If you're looking for a positive place to explore games, I highly recommend it. Um, that's from Chris, uh, who I have met in real life and who was very nice cool. and I believe yeah. gave me a card on my birthday. Oh, I know. That's really nice. Um, which is uh, just more... Um, evidence that our community is lovely so yeah. i mean in, in many ways this was a, a plug disguising itself as an email but <laughs> our discord community which you can find via link on our website creatingcrowbar.com is a a wonderful place to talk about all kinds of games and hobby related things it's lovely and it's just nice to see people kind of enjoy like it. i actually don't i don't um stop in on game dev very often and i kind no. of not in that this will sound terrible the thing i'm about to say but sometimes forget that it's there because <laughs> because there are aspects because i i tend to hover around uh episode discussion and words and um role models which is the miniatures painting yeah. kind of community it's great that we're at the point now where lots of different things are happening in different places so this thing that we ostensibly are responsible for not really i dip into <laughs> i dip into game dev every now and then um i don't post there much i just sort of like see what people are up to um and i also dip into roguelikes very often because a huge proportion of my favorite games are roguelikes um our roguelikes channel is a great place for spelunky discussion <laughs> you're talking about spelunky people can watch spelunky there every single day um and i'm always there for a long time i was there hoping they were talking about slay the spire and it was like mentioned a couple of times but it didn't really spark much discussion we went back to spelunky pretty fast and so Into the Breach is my next big hope for like to take over the Roguelikes channel. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> please, t- please talk about the Roguelikes I'm playing. I, I love Spelunky, but I've, I've stopped playing it. Okay. Although, actually, I, last time I checked there, like the latest message was about Spelunky. And I thought, oh, Spelunky. And then I read the message. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> First one was talking about he threw a sticky bomb out and then a caveman picked up the sticky bomb. And then the caveman ran into a tiki trap. The spikes on the tiki trap stabbed the caveman and the knockback flew the caveman into the player with the sticky bomb still attached to him. So it got killed by the sticky bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, Spelunky's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Spelunky hangs over roguelikes in a similar way that Games Workshop hangs over role models. <laughs> like, it's kind of hard to escape the gravitational pull, but one day it will happen. I'm a terrible lurker on these forums, and um, on most of those, there's a really nice Monster Hunter one as well. Lots of good Monster Hunter chat on there. Mm. It's good, it's good on the internet in that place. It's good on the internet. <laughs> Tom Senior approved. In that specific, you know, in that very particular place in that very specific place um we should answer a question rather than just talk about how great discord is true uh willie writes dear command and conquer since you said i won't send you any questions i will just to prove you wrong did you is is this a thing i missed last week we only had one question to read out so we might have said something okay i don't remember what we said but if you write in and challenges like that you previously had challenged us to not answer a question it probably works because it's definitely working yeah <laughs> unfortunately this has worked this is not <laughs> <laughs> this is not a sign for the future that this is always a way to get your question answered but no, nonetheless but it has worked so congratulations willie um willie writes i always enjoy people talking in accents in media 
yet cringe internally when a friend makes a typical mistake while speaking English. What are your favourite accents in games? Psychonauts comes to mind, where most of the characters whose brains you enter also have distinct accents like German agent Sasha Nine or French Fred Bonaparte. Alice Gut, Willy from Germany. The thing that amused me enormously about the Hitman episodic series was that, you know, it was a constant kind of thorn on the side of the series that everywhere you went, it was just a bunch of Americans. And it was mm. kind of the same Americans. I think there was one Australian actor as well. <laughs> and it would just be like, uh, you're in Marrakesh and everyone's talking American and mm. you're in Italy, everyone's talking American. And they finally did an episode that's actually in America and they hired a load of British actors. <laughs> like half the people on that level are British. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. I had this thought while playing Hellblade, which I, I appreciate I talked to you about already. And genuinely, I, I love, like, um, I came to it, it came out mid last year and I came to it right at the end of the year, basically in time before our game of the year discussions. And then it hit me like really quickly that like, I love Ninja Theory stuff anyway. Uh, I don't, but I, and I love DMC and I don't, didn't know if it was, but I think it was Hellblade was the point where it's like, I like everything the studio does. Like there's something about the way they, direct action and want to tell stories and try to tell stories through action and action play and those kinds of things that really, really resonates with me. And the one thing, the one small kind of directorial creative detail in Hellblade that I'm not sure about is the accents. And it's a really small thing, but it's a game that uses actors in a really interesting way. And I appreciate this, this question was about times we liked accents in games and all we're going to talk about is times we didn't, yep. but, um, <laughs> So, um, and it's not even the thing, so the, the thing that is, so the Hellblade situation is interesting because Hellblade uses a mixture of, uh, mo-capped, um, game acting alongside actual live action, um, because it overlays a heavily distorted, but real footage of real actors onto the play. And sometimes those characters are interacting with, um, you know, digital characters, and that actually works really well. The thing that I found the most consistently discordant actually was the accents of the actors. The obvious example of this, and actually I think, and it's not an issue at all, is um, the lead actress in Hellblade, Melina Jürgens, is German. And she speaks with a German accent. And actually I didn't find that that didn't bother me at all. She's playing a, like a, a Celt, I think, from Orkney. But it doesn't really affect it at all. Nor um, the other uh, predominant speaking character is a Scots storyteller called Druth, um, who sp- speaks with a Scottish accent. And that worked really well as well. The one that um, bothers me is a character called Tillian, who who, um, who shows up um, quite a lot through the second half of the game and is a significant character in, in Senua's story. Um, and the performance is really good, but it's delivered with... There's a sort of, it's not quite RP, it's not RP, like received pronunciation, but there's a way of delivering drama in, with an English accent that I've heard a lot in my life, like over the course of multiple kind of worthy TV shows and, and theatre specifically, where it's somewhere like neutral English. <laughs> is it the Mark Strong Space Marine accent? No, because the Mark <laughs> Strong Space Marine accent is, is the um I'm playing a Roman in I Claudius accent. They're oh, the yeah, same yeah, accent. Yeah. Like it's like, Branner, like Yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. yeah, it's the um it's the Shakespeare's Romans kind of voice, right? Yeah, that, that's does one... Mark Strong do a lot of space movies? He did one very he... well. <laughs> he did. In which game? Space uh, Marine. Space Marine. Okay. <laughs> no, that's the one. He's a very good space movie. He's the strongest mark. <laughs> <laughs> I um, like him in general as an actor. Yeah. Um no, I don't mean that. There's um uh so RP being received pronunciation being like um 
traditional sort of Shakespearean theatrical British Britishness, um, which you might have found in in Hollywood films of a certain era or whatever. Um, if that's not what I'm talking about, there's almost like a new sort of neutral delivery that I find really distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because it sounds very modern, I think. And sorry, I'm kind of talking around this point a little bit, but there's, um, I, I find the same thing in, in Dear Esther actually, um, which also has a kind of quite neutrally delivered. And when I say neutral, I don't mean lacking emotion or lacking kind of emotive thrust, but that you can't place the speaker, which I think is sort of a common thread of these accents. I actually have a, problem with somewhat it's like you've gone for the quality of the voice and the sound and the resonance of the voice over the kind of specificity of it whereas weirdly when the accents are more specific as with Senua being kind of inexplicably German I don't mind as much hmm. and that is something that um, I started to I think up more and more I have an answer to this which is uh, <laughs> Bennett Foddy in Getting Over It with Bennett Foddy mm. which I haven't even played much but it is just Bennett Foddy talking and he is Australian so he sounds Australian okay. <laughs> like you can't get away from it and uh that's one of the few accents I can say for sure is authentic. <laughs> that's okay, that's what I mean. You saved me from the kind of this the roundaboutness of this point. But the point is that like um natural elocution in an accent is actually quite pleasant to listen to mm. when it's understandable, which mm. it more often than not is. And there's definitely I've definitely picked up on this in a bunch of different maybe maybe I'm sensitive to it as an English person, that when you hear a kind of unnaturally well elocuted English accent in a game, which Tillian in, in, in Hellblade stands out to me as, and actually the narrator in Dear Esther stands to me out as, even though it's a good performance otherwise, it takes me out of it in a way that just dumping any other kind of natural spoken accent in there hmm. wouldn't. Where does the um, the narrator of the Stanley Parable stand on that spectrum? Oh, he's great. Uh, he's great. <laughs> I think that's fine because that's more, like, that is explicitly a performance. Yeah, actually. it's kind of a similar type of thing, I think, perhaps you're describing, like, maybe... I think, so it's, yeah, not, the role, I think, calls for a, a very, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you want yeah, it to be like that, showy and performancey. And and over, yeah, that is yeah, explicitly yeah. like a narrator role, right? Like he is, he, he actually does a narrator voice. But is that like, the type of delivery you're talking about? Not, so not really, just like um, Kevin yeah. Brighting, yeah. I think is the name um, of the actor yeah. in Stanley Parable. The brightest Kevin, the strongest Mark. <laughs> um, the, um, which is, I think, the beginning of the Green Lantern Oath. Um, the, <laughs> um, no, I guess, I guess what I'm talking about, which this is going to be agony to anyone who doesn't, um, there's a particular sort of, um, n- neutral kind of almost like BBC English mm-hmm. that gets employed in the pursuit of drama specifically. Like the Stanley Parallel example of a narrator who's explicitly narrating, right? It's kind of larger than life and it's talking directly to the player. Mm. It's not emoting for the benefit of the character. Um, in case of Dear Esther, the speaker is actually speaking to somebody who isn't you implicitly. Uh, they're letters or they are so diary entries to Esther. Um, or in, um, uh, in, in Hellblade, all of the dialogue is remembered speech. So it's things that have been said to Senua at different points mm. and they're sort of remembered as if they were natural at the time. And they're quite, and simply those ones strike me as quite performancy in a way that doesn't quite work. And I almost wish that they had decided on like a single consistent accent or mode of delivery for all of the principal characters, simply to tie them together as part of a, the community they're supposed to belong to so that it would kind of hold better. Is there a name for the um, accent that sort of early Hollywood actors had? Oh, yeah. 
because it's, it's like American, but it's it's almost that a little bit British. Yeah, yeah it's got, got a cut glass very, quality to it. Yeah, yeah it's over enunciated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. mm. I don't know if that qualifies as a form of RP. Um, it definitely straddles the two. It's weird, like even the modern. You know, you, you, if you know people who've gone over to America who were British, they pick up certain. Like mm. it's amazing how the accent, their accent changes the way they talk change. And I like listen to PC, PJ Harvey, for example, do an interview, oh, yeah. and she's like, you know, existed in both England and America, and her accent is a, a very interesting amal- amalgamation of both. Mm. That sounds kind of unnatural because you just probably don't hear many people speaking like that. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. My, uh, sorry, my little answer to this question. Not an accent thing, but I love that um, in XCOM 2 they added, and in fact, not before XCOM 2 actually, they added the ability to actually um, have your soldiers speak in their national like tongues. Yeah. Mm. And I really would love to hear more you know, native languages spoken in my games. Or I want to hear people from you know Germany speaking German with yeah. subtitles and I want to hear people talking Spanish with subtitles I love be, by the time I enabled that option I'd heard all the standard lines enough times that now <laughs> when I hear them in a foreign language I know exactly what they're saying <laughs> <laughs> I can tell from your tone of voice you're saying I just killed oh, a lot of shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um, I really like that I'd love to hear more languages in my games mm. definitely yeah 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 I'd like to I'd like games to like I think maybe the other example of this, maybe to get around to what I'm saying from a different angle, is that um so for example, um the traditional fantasy thing is like, you know, dwarves are Scottish, for example, or mm. dwarves are from Yorkshire, yeah. Orcs are from south of the river. Um Orcs from Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> um Yorks. <laughs> <laughs> um and there's definitely a tendency to um like not ground player characters in a particular place like player characters tend to be quite neutrally yeah delivered. i wonder about this about Geralt yeah where the hell is Geralt from <laughs> yeah exactly he's got an amazing Grothville. yeah and so I guess I, I, I've definitely oh yeah um Elias Dufexis is um Adam Jensen I love his I don't oh, know if yeah. you call it an accent but just his whole thing yeah <laughs> whatever the fuck he's <laughs> doing accent. with his voice I his, love it the quarry he's from <laughs> yeah <laughs> Like, yeah, I mean, so I think this is the thing, like, and this is a genuine, so as far as I can tell, I'm definitely going on a limb here with this and I haven't been for a while, <laughs> but like games, I think have a history of, of picking their voices for the quality of the voice rather than the way that voice integrates with the world of the game. I think that's basically everything that I'm talking about here. It kind mm. of comes down to that. Like, it's the way, like, yeah, you're right. Geralt has an amazing sounding voice. Is that kind of you know immersively right for the person in the situation kind of yes kind of no for his character it yeah. happens to be but i could see how it can go wrong yeah. yeah and like i always feel like it's a little bit put on it always feels like someone trying to sound tough more yeah. than someone who really is tough yeah. um and that's a tough thing with games because you have to sell so much through the voice and that's, that's, that's jensen as well though isn't it well so i <laughs> i actually i didn't have anything to back it up at the time i thought like for some reason when when adam jensen speaks it doesn't sound like a put on voice. And when Geralt du- speaks, it does. And then I decided, I'm going to test this theory. I'm going to Google both these voice actors and mm. find out what their real voice looks like. Uh, it sounds like. In Last Effects, it really does speak like that. That is his voice. Right. <laughs> and the Witcher guy does not speak like that. <laughs> you can tell. I think, I genuinely think you can tell. Like, Have you ever seen Last Effects in a show? He was yes. in Star Trek Discovery. He's in the Expanse. Yeah. Uh, 
Oh, is he? Is he? Yeah, is he in season two? He doesn't look like. I've he only season sounds. two. He was in another sci-fi show I watched, and it, he's like a sort of meek nerd in that. And then as soon as he opens his mouth, he's like, "Oh my god! Wow!" <laughs> Adam Jensen's inside the nerd. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's his voice. Okay. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, like um, I think that's like this. Um, Definitely, like, you can do this with the Shepherds, the original Mass Effect Shepherds. <laughs> like, I think one of the reasons that people love, um, Jennifer Hale, Jennifer Hale's performance as Shepherd so much is that actually, weirdly, if you pick all the renegade options <clears throat> as female Shepherd, she becomes more Southern. Gets, <laughs> like, there's a genuine, there's more of a Southern, like, a Southern American twang to her voice. <laughs> the more renegade you go, like, the more, like, Lone Star State, the icon you pick. The kind of more Texan she becomes over time. And I think because it's grounded a little bit better, whereas Mark Mayer's male shepherd doesn't really do that. It's a very straight down the middle, like mm. as neutral as possible voice mm. and doesn't emote as much into the kind of extremes of Paragon or Renegade with the exception of the few lines of Mass Effect 2 where he becomes inexplicably and extremely Canadian. <laughs> Um, which I actually, I find kind of helpful. It's our ground shepherd. <laughs> He's from Canada. <laughs> Makes sense now. Um, yeah, I think I'd like more regional accents. Basically just, you know, I don't know, Scouse protagonist for the next Bioware game. That'd be great. Let's <laughs> go with that. <laughs> our next question comes from Joshua who writes, which games bear the barest bears? Ursine regards. Grizzly. Sorry if you wanted to be just Grizzly and not the other first name I said. Well, <laughs> shit. I've already forgotten it, so. <laughs> Bears. Question mark. Uh, Bear is spelt how? Uh, B-E open bracket A-R-E close bracket S-T. What? <laughs> so, the option there. so the, the two options provided by the parentheses are the word best ah, and the word best. Bar, uh, and the word R. So, the word, <laughs> um, so I would say both best and most existentially pure. Pure. Having the, having the quality of being. Cause the, the parenthesis has the, let's do some reading here. Like the parenthesis has the effect of separating the word B from the word R. And if you think about it. <laughs> hey, uh, mildly on topic. Uh, you remember Big Lebowski, um, uh, the old like cowboy looking dude in, in, mm. in the bar. He says, you know, some days you eat the bar and sometimes the bar eats you. And I was always like, why is the bar eating you? He's just saying bear, but apparently in certain southern regions, like it's a dialect to just say it bar. Right. You just say bear as bar. I thought he said so that, bar. So that mysterious line is deciphered now. It's, he's saying bear. <laughs> just in no, his own so little way. A bar is, he so is saying out a bar, but the bar doesn't eat anyone. So and this- you can't eat the bar. <laughs> This might be um, another complete. Uh, this might be complete bollocks. The thing I'm about to say, but let's go with it. Um, did you know? Do you know why Beowulf's called Beowulf? As in the old English kind of. Is it hero. to do with bears? It is, yeah. <laughs> From context, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. If this is wrong, someone's going to definitely write in and tell me. So it's not to do with wolves. No. Well, it is and isn't. So um, the so the reason is that. Um, Beowulf literally means the wolf of the bees. Um, and <laughs> wolf in old English is sort of, uh, alludes to consumption, like eating, oh, yeah. kind of consuming rabbits. We still use that. Hungry right? like a wolf. I right? wolfed it, it down. Sense. Yeah, wolfed it down. Um, so what it means is the one that eats the bees, really. 
Um, and, uh, the way I ended up learning this is that's because, um, the word for bear was quite a bit taboo. Like, you know, I guess if you say too many times, a bear will arrive like Candyman. <laughs> um, bear, bear, bear. Oh, shit. Oh, well, she's done it now, Tom. Um, and so Beowulf is a, a way of alluding to the strength and profile of a bear without saying it. My, uh, there you go. There's you a said three, t- three times while looking at a tree real close. Yeah. <laughs> I th- uh, I that think might be complete bollocks. But while eating salmon. It sounds interesting. <laughs> bra, bra, bra. <laughs> 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 Why? I think everyone who's had a family dog has seen the dog eat a bee, though, and <laughs> it is disastrous. Uh, I remember, like, ah, Golden Retriever just coming in with a, a fat face, and we're like, what's so, happened to that animal? <laughs> the eater of bees was a bear. Bears eat yeah. bees. Okay. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was a way of alluding to bees. It was like saying, like, the little boy's room. Bears. Uh, okay. <laughs> when you mean toilet. <laughs> anyway, on the, on the bear question. Um, is, that, is that why... Bears are called bears because they're like bee eaters. They just yeah. took out some letters from bee eaters. And I guess bears. so. Maybe. Maybe we secretly don't know what the word for bear actually is. Tom, you were going to say something about video games. Yeah. I was going to say that the, <laughs> Let's best, hope. The, be- the best, the best bears are in Skyrim. Yeah. And, um, but Oblivion's bears were shit. Because they, they are like bosses. <laughs> that's your Skyrim, bear, Thesda. Right? Uh, <laughs> theory, that's it. I remember definitely in Skyrim, like, just seeing a bear from, like, a hundred feet and just being like, fucking rawr! Yeah, 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 yeah. They're amazing. But do you remember the bears from Oblivion? No. They're just tiny little fucking wombat things. Which maybe is the point, yeah. But they chase you forever and do horrendous damage. They do the damage. They have the stamina of a real Oh, no. I have a good memory of bears. They go, And they don't sound like bears. Like, that doesn't sound like a bear. Not far off. Bears make very underwhelming noises. Oh, really? Yeah. I did have one good moment with bears in Oblivion where... I, as a Dark Brotherhood contract, I had to assassinate somebody and it's like, oh, he's traveling from this town to this town and he's allergic to honey. So if you can sneak some mead into his inventory, maybe he will eventually drink it and then like poison himself because he's allergic to the honey in the mead. Right. And I was like, okay, I'll buy some mead. And I, I trotted out to where he was like between the two towns. He was, he was, um, uh, riding between and I followed the marker and I got to the marker and there's just like a dead horse on the track and then there's a corpse in the bushes over there and there's a bear running away from it <laughs> <laughs> my job is done <laughs> collect this contract no poisoning necessary who's allergic to honey I don't know probably some people <laughs> okay <laughs> I'll accept that <laughs> our final question uh, it comes from Stephen, who writes, Dear CNC, I've been playing Super Hexagon on and off for a year now. Often without thought, I find the game running and the arduous task of attempting to get all six achievements suddenly is the only thought in my brain. I have the last, only have the last achievement to attain. I'm going to start that sentence again. I only have the last achievement to obtain now, but it feels slightly outside my skill level. After 15 hours, there's little, no enjoyment left for me. This may be my white whale, but I can't give it up till it's done. Do you have a game that you are not certain if you like anymore, but you can't seem to stop going back to for some reason? Keep up the amazing podding, Stephen, from Edinburgh. I don't have that exactly, but on the subject of achievements and trying to get them all, mm. I never do. But Into the Breach has a special reward for getting all the achievements, and it's a it's a big deal. It's it's um uh it's not a spoiler because if you look at the squad menu, it says on there what it is. 
<laughs> um, but maybe I won't say it. Uh, so there's two different things in Into the Breach I can tell are secrets, but I don't know what either of them are. I've never found them, so I can't spoil them for you, even if I wanted to. Um, and for a long time, I thought they were both the same thing. I thought it was like, if you get all the achievements, then you unlock the secret thing, and that also gets you this other thing. But I've just done some maths on like, uh, the secret thing you unlock, you need 25 points to do it. Oh. <laughs> watching tom francis thinking live <laughs> i guess i've spent like every time you unlock an achievement in into the breach you get a coin and coins can be spent to unlock new squads i have unlocked all of the standard squads the eight squads and then there are two others that like um random squad and custom squad um i have access to both those as well and the last thing left to do is unlock this other thing that costs 25 achievement points and i looked at all the achievements i don't have and added up all the points i could get and it's exactly the number I would need for that. Uh, so I need to get every single achievement to unlock the secret. But one of the other achievements is for finding a secret. I can tell from the, the silhouette and the name of the achievement, it's like, there's this secret thing that happens. I don't know how to trigger it, but something, a sort of Easter egg type thing happens. And previously I thought, oh, that's when you get, uh, that's if you get all the other achievements and you spend this money. But no, you need that achievement in order to get the other coins to spend this thing. Um, and... Yeah, it at least must be possible to get this this secret achievement uh, before spending these coins to get this secret thing, because otherwise I'm screwed. <laughs> otherwise I can never get it. Uh, but now I realize if I didn't unlock all the squads, if I left one of those squads off, I would have a better chance of getting this the, enough coins for the secret thing, because I need 25 coins. The only way to get 25 coins in my situation is to get every single achievement in the game. Sounds like some sort of pyramid scheme. It's, you're yeah, I never normally do this. And there's, it's almost all stuff I am happy to do. There's a load of like, um, a lot of it's like, be this good at the game or play this, play the game for long enough, get this many victories, win with every squad, that kind of stuff. And then there's just a couple that are like, to get this, I need to start a run with the intent of getting this. Like the one about destroying time pods. Like, I would never normally do that. I have to start a run to do that. And they're not difficulty restricted, so you can play on easy and do them. And that's the thing that's like, well, I can do it, but it's just time. <laughs> like, that's not hard to do. It's just, I have to play on easy so that I can do it easily. Um, but I don't want to play on easy because it's not as fun on easy. Um, and if I try on medium, I won't be able to do it because I'll just fail the game in the attempt. Um, but are you sure that like if you unlocked all the achievements that it would unlock something significant in the game like really significant yeah it's it says on the menu so I can tell you it's a squad it's a new squad is it there's a whole new squad is it bear squad I don't know what it is it just says secret squad it's bear squad and I, I'm like um, it's all five power ranges <laughs> I'm on a testers channel where like all people who who play the game to, to hell and back uh, talking and they all talk about this secret squad but none of them have ever said what it is and I really respect them for that okay. like this is a it would be a big spoiler to say what it is I don't know what it is at all um, is it three spaceships from FTL I'm really glad I don't know what it is no, and they've never said and they've talked about like really in-depth balance stuff about how the, the secret squad you know takes a while to ramp up but it's it's hard early on but then it's it's really powerful later on oh, and they've never said anything about what it is or what it does and that's that's really cool <laughs> that's kind of cool but i'm gonna cheat to get that <laughs> i'm not gonna unlock every single achievement in the game probably and the so that's the question i, I i've never 100 anything in terms of achievements and i never will but just simply because most games just put bullshit uh you know targets to hit for that sort of thing 
the worst of which is like your stupid feather challenges in old Assassin's Creed games where you'd have yeah. to run around picking up feathers or infinite collectibles. Oh, yeah. I 100% did Assassin's Creed 2 and Brotherhood and Collections. Why? Did it unlock a squad? Uh, you get a cool armor in okay. all of them. I like armor in those games. Yeah. Why though? Um, <laughs> trying to think if there's a particular white whale. Like, I guess the obvious answer for me is Dota is a total white whale because it's like, it's a game I play a lot of that frequently makes me sad. Does it have achievements? <laughs> no, it's not about chasing achievements so much as chasing mastery, I guess. Presumably but... it does have achievements of some kind, right? Does it? Yeah, but they're like tutorial related, I think. I okay, so you, do you get them all trivially? Yeah, like, actually, I think once upon a time, Dota had an achievement for like, eating a thousand trees. <laughs> And so you sometimes just get people just like eating, munching. That is their, an achievement. I'll, I'll go along with that. <laughs> munching their way through a game in pursuit of that Steam achievement for some reason. But like, no, I don't think it really does anymore. No, I mean, I mean, in terms of like white whales, right? Like, like mastery of that game is the ultimate white whale because mm. it's it's complete nonsense. Um, but no, otherwise, I, I think it's been a while since. Like, I played a lot of Super Hexagon. Talking about the game, this question's actually about. Like, mm. I played a lot of Super Hexagon. Uh, five years ago. Um, but it didn't stick. Like, it's been a while. Like, Devil Daggers might have been the last one. Like, the last game like that that really, like, I would load up constantly to try and do better at. It's been a while since I've been grabbed by a kind of impossible score challenge or something like that. Mm. Most achievements is, so most achievements just badges though. And so, yeah. uh, my favorite achievements tend to be just jokes that pop up. <laughs> I keep the achievement pop-ups on on Steam because, like, if, if there's a funny gag associated with a thing you've just done in a game, that's a really nice little nod from the developer. It's just like a little, mm. you know, salute that's like, yeah, good job. You've you've done yeah. a funny thing with this game system. But they don't tend to re- normally reward you. Like, I mean, the, what you described, Tom, sounds amazing. The idea that you, if you do complete a game, you get a squad that lets you play the game completely differently. Yeah, it's... I, I like unlocking stuff but getting every achievement is a very high bar and it mm. means that even if like there's always going to be a bunch of achievements that you just don't want to do they just you're not interested yeah. in it and you just have to do them if you uh if you want this thing hmm. that's the nature of moby dick tom <laughs> you get to choose <laughs> not an optional whale <laughs> uh, i'd like to choose the yellow whale okay. <laughs> or the blue whale <laughs> Goodbye, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly sad end to this podcast. That is all of the questions we've got time for. If you'd like to send us a question for future episodes of The Crate and Crowbar, you can do so by emailing us at questions at crateandcrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. You can, as already mentioned on this podcast, hang out with our Discord community on Discord. Uh, You'll find the link for our Discord channel on our website at crateandcrowbar.com. Uh, as ever, the Crate and Crowbar and all of its spin-offs are supported by our Patreon, which you can find more details of at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. Your much appreciated, uh, weekly, uh, pledges go towards everything we do, which is, which is rad. Speaking about everything else we do, appreciate that, um, so I, Chris, have had a couple of weeks of, uh, unavailability due to some un- unforeseen circumstances, uh, recently. And as a result, uh, some things like Little Grey Cells, Bloodborne, and Miniatures Monthly have all basically suffered minor or major setbacks because of that. We will get back on the those various horses <laughs> at our earliest equine convenience. 
Um, so yeah, apologize for the, the, the wait, particularly for more Bloodborne, because I appreciate it's been a little while since Tom and I exhausted the last of our most recent session. We're gonna session. beat it, Chris. We're gonna do it. We are gonna finish it. We're gonna finish it. We're gonna start getting <laughs> by spiders, snakes, and doctors and win it. Win it, win the game. But nonetheless, um, so yeah, apologies for the delay. Thank you so much for your, uh, support. So I'd clarify how it's happening. In terms of bonus crate and crowbar stuff, um, I believe it was mentioned in the last episode, but we will be recording a live episode of the podcast at EGX Resed in London's Tobacco Dock on the 14th of April. That's the Saturday of Resed at 4.30 p.m. Um, the confirmed lineup is, I believe, myself, Tom Francis, and Graham, a voice from the past, with guests to be confirmed. Uh, you do need a ticket for the uh, Saturday at Resed to attend. Uh, obviously, that gets you access to the whole show and all the games and things that are on show at the show. Uh, where they show the games. Um, uh, and yeah, and then after we, uh, our, our slot and the, the schedule lasts from 4.30 till the end of the show, at which point we're going to the pub. So that should be pretty good. Nice. Um, I think that's all there is to say about that for now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you'd like to follow us as individuals, I'm on Twitter at C- Thurston, which is E-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. Tom Senior is... At P-C-G-U-L-U-D-O, L-U-D-O. I am at Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody. <laughs>